0: MX Network production.
1: Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. With your continuing gracious support of our sponsors, we're thriving at over 1,800 podcasts delivered with over 20 million downloads. Click the Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Here's the voice bringing it all to you, Steve Mathis.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. I'm Steve Mathis. Thanks for listening. appreciate it. Again, check out Fly Racing at uh, motorsport.com or your local dealer. And see the latest and greatest from the folks at Fly Racing. Justin Brayton in Fly Racing gear this year. Uh, Joey Savacchi in Fly Racing. Uh, Shane McElrath, Max Anstey, all in Fly. Zach Osborne, Fly Racing. The Formula CP helmet is uh, doing a great thing. It's a still got the same safety features as the regular Formula. Just a little different shell. And a uh, little different price as well. So thanks to the folks at Fly Racing really really help those guys for uh for everything that they, they do and it's been a lot of fun to work with them and see them grow uh, as our shows go on and on so flyracing.com check it out please and uh again uh great company so thanks to those guys Renthal on board with us as well renthal.com. dot com more wins uh than everybody other any other brand combined when it comes to the handlebar uh segment of the market so uh, Team Honda chose Renthal way back in 1986, and they're still running it, man, with Ken Rockson and Chase Sexton. Of course, Adam C and Cirillo. Cooper Webb, your two-time 450 Supercross champion. He uses Renthal, grips, chains, sprockets. Renthal.com for more information. they got a super cool uh, chart on their website to see the bend of bar and the measurements and everything, so you can look at all the different bends and pick the one that's right for you. It's really, really cool to go to Renthal.com. And also, mountain bike stuff, stems and bars. Do a good job with that, and uh, bolt on grips. Renthal.com. Thank you to the folks at Maxis Tires. MXSTs developed by Jeremy McGrath and used by the SGB Maxxis Honda team. They do a great job with the tires, whether it's UTV tires, mountain bike tires, light truck tires. They can do it all over there at uh, maxis.com. So thank you to those guys for coming on board. Jeremy McGrath, he knows something about tires, and he chooses Maxxis. So thank you to those guys. Kobolinks and Motorsport.com we'll get to in a little bit. So this is the audio of the Racer X Films, Pulp MX Films. Conversation I had with Dave Arnold about the old factory bikes. Uh, this is on YouTube on uh, Racer X and YouTube on Paul If you want to watch us do it with uh, video of the motorcycles and the things that we're talking about and all of that. And then I figured I'd take the audio, make it a podcast. Thank you to Jordan Powell for that help with the video. And so people who don't want to watch it can uh, can listen to this. And Dave was a part of some of the coolest moments in motocross and supercross history. There's no doubt about it. Super smart guy. So I wanted to take the audio and, and put it here. And then at the end, there's a bonus audio. Maybe uh, I think it's 20 minutes or something. Totally different from the Honda work bikes. We talk about Eli Tomac. We talk about Alta. We talk about Bale and Stanton and everything else. That kind of era when he was the manager and he had to do all that. So if you've, if you've seen the video and you enjoyed it, uh, fast forward a little bit and catch the very end when we, this is a whole new conversation that I had with Dave after we were done shooting video. And again, thank you to you people for watching. Thank you to people for listening to this. I could talk to Dave Arnold all day long and I'm super stoked that I've, I've got a chance to do this. And also, um, there's another, there's a two part podcast with Dave in the Steve Mathis archives, search Dave Arnold or search Steve Mathis. You'll see the Steve Mathis, uh, show archives on there at volume one, two, and three, Somewhere in there is the two shows I did with Dave, where we talked about the Motocross of the Nations. We talk a lot about his career, and uh, so listen to those podcasts too; they're great. So the, again, a lot of Dave Arnold, a lot of history, and uh, really happy to do this. And so enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome. I'm Steve Mathis for Racer X Films and Pulp MX, and we're sitting right here at the Honda Warehouse in Torrance, California to talk about some really cool bikes and some real cool history of American Honda, and there's nobody I'd rather have here to talk about that than a guy who was a race team mechanic and a team manager for Honda Racing for a long time, AMA Hall of Famer, also Dave Arnold. What's up, Dave? Thanks for coming by. Uh, Thanks for having me, Steve. Um, this is pretty cool. Uh, thank you for doing this. This, uh, these, these bikes here, they represent the pinnacle of racing. They're some of the coolest motorcycles ever made. And Dave, you were a part of these things from start to finish. And uh, I mean, I guess mid seventies to to mid nineties, uh, you were involved in the, in the big red machine.
0: Yeah, I just, thought that's the way it always supposed to be at a motorcycle manufacturer but then you look back and that was a pretty special period
2: it was of course and we uh now we have the production rule of course and we'll get into that a little bit but some of these bikes are are, are one-offs and handmades and everything else and you're a big part of them um i guess let's go through the bikes let's talk about the years let's talk about the racing some of the iconic riders that have, have ridden these machines and we'll start with uh i guess the gary jones bike first of all what's so special about the gary jones machine
0: well, I think the, in the early 70s, the Japanese, I mean, the the sport was mainly a European sport coming to the United States, and it was mainly a European brand. It was Husqvarna and CZ and Mako and Baltaco and Osa and brands like that. And so when the Japanese got involved, um, you know, I think quality and availability was one thing, but I think they focused on lightweight as probably the biggest objective, and this, I hear most of this from Roger because this is work Suzukis in Europe. They right. were super lightweight. And he also said the carburation was superior than you know, the Mikuni compared to the Jikoff that he had on his CZ. So probably those two things.
2: Right. And Gary Jones is a three-time champion uh, in the 250 class as well for Honda guys. Um, you were working with a young rider from uh, San Diego named Marty Smith. Uh, and incredibly, you guys did the uh, motocross series. Think about this. The AMA motocross series and the 125 GPs in Europe at the same time, and you were the mechanic and responsible for the machines. Uh, we've got one here. Uh, talk about this one a little bit.
0: Yeah, so actually that year you're talking about, that was in 76, Marty won the championship with a different mechanic, John Rosensteel, okay. in 74 and 75. I think that was the first two years of the 125 Nationals. And that bark, that bike was just lightweight, again, and uh, the production bike that eventually came out was just a piston port engine that that engine actually has a case reed. I think Suzuki came out with it years later, but it 's got the intake track it 's a piston port and it 's a case reed but ma- mainly just kind of lightweight and pretty damn fast I think was the focus of the the, the engineering of that particular it was bike.
2: really it was the sort of the uh, the beginning of the uh, dominant Elsinore run right of Honda production motorcycles and I mean, if you look back now, those bikes kind of changed the sport, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I think, and, and, you know, of course, I'm not the the marketing guy, but I think <laughs> they made a lot of Elsinores. And I think up until that point, you know, European bikes or European motocross bikes, um, they're pretty expensive and Probably not quite as durable as a lot of the, you know, as what, let's say, Honda focused on. When they came out with the Elsinore, they made a lot of them. They were readily available, and they already had a dealer network that was just everywhere. So
2: So when you're working with Marty, and now you're a factory Honda mechanic... The big the big advances and correct me if i'm wrong the big advances are suspension and, and and trying to get more travel trying to get a better stroke trying to get uh the bike to handle a little bit better you're moving the shocks around right you're 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 getting some some parts from japan what are sort of the what are the, some of the advantages on the on the chassis side slash suspension side that you think that you and marty are seeing uh, is working for you
0: well when you say uh, i mean in the 70s the advancements were just huge i mean a lot of the there was I mean there was just so much development to be had whether it was engine rideability and but also chassis at first it was long travel once you had lightweight then it got in then there was the monoshock and it was long travel then everybody was scrambling moving their suspension pivot points for the shock trying to get additional suspension travel once we got travel we created heat on the suspension component then there was decarbon separating the gas and the oil and then after that, it was the cartridge forks. And after we got travel, and that's easy to say, but it took years. I mean, that was a, probably a five, six, seven, eight-year period. Engineers, you don't just put long suspension components on an existing chassis from the early 70s. You know, you have to re-engineer the, the engine and how compact countershaft sprockets are to swing and pivots. And, but once we got long travel, then... The riders want uh, increased progressivity, or then they want it. Yeah. They want the best of both, you know. Right. Long travel is great, but they want it to be. They wanted to hook up and be compliant, and they want a lot of control for G-force. So, yep. it, then it, that was more 80 and early 80s. We got into progressivity.
2: Yeah, and at some point we go from dual shocks to to a single shock. Of course, what we see today, that must have been a big change as well. Uh, what were the benefits of doing that, uh, and what were were there any drawbacks to that? I mean, I would imagine lighter weight. And you can make a bigger shock shaft, which would work a little better. But were there any drawbacks or anything that guys didn't like?
0: There's no drawbacks.
2: Okay, no drawbacks at all. No,
0: I mean, there's a whole bunch of benefits to when when all the motorcycle manufacturers went to a single shock design. One, it was incorporated at the same time they were engineering progressive linkage systems. But having the shock and the spring and everything, there's a term called mass centralization where you want... Most of your weight toward the center of gravity, and so the shock, and, uh, and not only just the shock, but the main frame structure supported the, the, the suspension system. So then, you know, your air box and subframes, those things become lighter. They become um, I, I, the whole bike just became a better design, in my opinion, so more more durable.
2: You're doing the GPs, you're doing the GPs and the motor, AMA motocross with Marty. Same bike. Uh, different bikes uh, obviously the, the works the works rule is out there um, are you is it the same exact thing on both sides are you learning from one continent to the next on what maybe could work for, for both sides
0: well that was so you're talking about in 76 yeah. so I was Marty's mechanic here in the states yeah. and and uh, they started out being somewhat the same bike okay. it was basically similar to the 74, 75 championship bikes with a little bit more travel. They also started to develop a, I'm sorry, a reed valve um, cylinder as opposed to the case reed yep. that we previously had. So, but we were behind, we were behind the, the ball at that point in time. Monoshock was, Hannah started to dominate here um, in in the States. And then when Marty went to Europe, you know, Gaston Air and Suzuki, the, the, both of those companies had been developing their hardware in the Grand Prix's and Honda was selling Elsinore's for motocross tracks in the States. But if you go to Saddleback or Carlsbad, they weren't real rough tracks. They were, I would call them more scrambles tracks, not big jumps, yeah. not big bumps. So, but going into 76, we were behind. So they had to develop a new series, kind of a, their, um, Kind of their response to Yamaha's monoshock, yeah. they developed this bike called the Type 2. Okay. Um, Pierre Carsmakers was hired to help him with a lot of the development. He went back and forth to Japan quite a bit. At first, they made a 400. I think Pierre might have raced it in the Trans Am late 75. Uh, but then in 76, we got the 125, but it was mid-season. So okay. when you ask, same bike, everything was evolving. And there was then, then there was also a hiccup with... Uh, Um, Claiming rules so even when we started racing the type 2, then somebody tried to claim it and then Honda freaked out and pulled the bike And then we were racing the old bike and so it was a messed up year We probably raced three or four bikes in that series.
2: Yeah, really so are you and you're a race mechanic at this point You would go on to be a a central figure and and as a manager and have direct communications with Japan I don't imagine at this point working for Marty in 76 You're not having direct communication too much with Japan right You, you you have a manager and that they're handling it how much are you, but I'm wondering, from your sense of, uh, of speaking about it, you talk about the, Ra- the Ray hair bike, the Suzuki's, and the Monoshock, and Bob's bike. Are you getting the sense that Honda is, is ramping up, let's say, or developing, with CarsMaker's help, developing some really good motorcycles at this point? And we'll get to the dominant ones, but at this point, are you thinking, can you see Honda being, like, really aggressive in racing?
0: In in the 70s, I would say that there was sparks of brilliance. I mean, there were some bikes that uh, people collect, let's say the Type 2s or some of the early, like you say, the Jones bike, the Smith bike. And in each era, you know, there were beautiful, you know, magnesium castings and the craftsmanship for the frames. And there was. But, you know, I, I think it was. Again, the advancements were so big, you know, Honda was strong for two or three years and then Yamaha was strong for probably four or five years, you know, and then Suzuki would come with the full floater. And But to answer your question, was was engineering a full-time occupation in the motocross era in the 70s? I don't think it was. I think it was spotted. It was more of a reaction that, okay, it's the end of the year. We got to design the new bikes. Um, we either have time or we're going to, some of this stuff was subbed out to accompanied um, called Mugen, which was ha- yeah. Soshiro Honda's son, Hiratoshi. And then they would build some of them, r and would build some of them. And it wasn't really until 1980 that Honda decided to give this thing a lot of attention.
2: So they go and hire Roger DeCoster at some point, right? They, a multi-time world champion. They get him on over. And is, is Roger coming over and being like, how much of a help is Roger in, in developing and pushing the racing agenda for Honda, which we see behind us, uh, through?
0: Um, Roger, that was one part. You know, they probably had a strategy of engineers and they had budget. And, the, and the, there's a thing called LPL in Japan, large project leader. That's, okay. the, head, that's the head dude. So there yep. was Soshiro Honda and then there was a LPL at HRC, Miyakoshi, who had hired Roger. And so he's got budget and he's got engineers and he's got a, some kind of a structure to, you know, try to get ahead of this thing as opposed to following the deal, right. you know. And uh, But Roger um you know this guy respected roger roger had a lot of experience from racing and development i think he's got a pretty good balance of how much is hardware how much is writer i mean it takes a lot to win it takes hardware and you know the atmosphere uh to keep writers focused too and motivated sure but um but but roger had japan's ear and you know the whole team was out there testing and trying to evolve the bikes even in the early 80s when we didn't have any of the top riders yet i mean howerton was at, i think suzuki at this point bob was still at yamaha um barnett was at suzuki i mean yep. you know honda really was i mean we were working on stuff they had hired roger but for riders we really were playing catch up but we did a lot of testing we had fab shops we had frame fixtures we would cut things up and change we started to you know we did a lot of development our own self here in the states that led to some of the exotic stuff that you know came back from japan in 82 83 84 so
2: now you're legendary for your knowledge in chassis and suspension uh you've helped out a lot of teams you still help people out to this day in 2021 um are you As a young Dave Arnold, are you starting to to, – you're you're leading that path as as a mechanic. You're more interested in that than motor development. You're more interested in seeing how a bike can handle better and what you can do. We talked about moving shocks and things. Is that where your interest starts to start coming into into play here?
0: Yeah, I I would say yes. I've always fascinated with – I mean, even from dirt track racing, you know, wire building. I mean, in dirt track racing, everybody raced British bikes at the time, and then they would – Aftermarket, you know, Redline and Champion and CNJ and all these people. Yep. Why are they doing that? What are they changing? Is We're it happy. just for weight? And and then as motocross started to evolve, I mean, it's just <laughs> making bikes go over bumps, you know. So why to? And there was a there's a guy I ran into, helped with fabrication, Bruce Burness. He worked for S&W in the mid '70s. Later on, he worked for Olean Shocks. Him and I became really good friends and. He he was uh he was really good with suspension, but he also taught me a lot in more of the dynamics. You know, not and not really a theoretical guy, more of a conceptual guy. Like, uh, you, you know, you've heard things. If, if you move you,
2: this, you got to yeah, move this. It so, was almost yeah.
0: like, uh, you know, I have a problem with my rear suspension, but his automatic response might have been, yeah, but what's the front? You know, yeah. and then you start thinking at things. You know, uh, everything on a motorcycle is so interdependent. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's almost never just the shock or it's almost never just the right. chassis. It's how all these things yeah. work together. Yeah. So uh, I got fascinated with it in the 70s. I think like a lot of people involved in the sport because, you know, we were in the infant stages. And you had, how do you get travel? You see people doing it 10 different ways by cutting the frame and, and lengthening the shock or moving the shock mounts. and And then once we did that with the rear suspension, then you make a longer fork well then now you don't have fork overlap and the the forks are twisty and it's unstable then you gotta develop front suspension at the same time and then so and then then engineers had to go back and re 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 the motor and put the counter shaft sprocket close to the swing arm pivot so uh yeah i was always fascinated with that and also within honda you know the deeper i got into chassis design or or development you know honda it's it's honda motor company you know they were pretty solid and they were pretty proud of their capability for engine development yeah. but a lot of the, this goes way back even into road racing i would say that they never really looked at the chassis design or the portion of the you know the development as seriously as they did the engine i'm not bagging on them. It. It's just kind of the dynamic that was hard to nail down where Motor is more of a pure science. I think they can measure it, and they can see dyno curves, and they can look at acceleration. They can, yep. you know, chassis, you know.
2: A bit of a black art. it's a bit of a black art. So
0: <laughs> right. I th- the, Honda is very much a company of pure engineering, and sometimes pure engineering has a hard time understanding things that are subjective or dynamic. Right, so. Right.
2: So one of the things we have here, of course, talking about engineering and talking about innovation and Honda and everything else. One of the bikes we have here is it's a it's a it's a a riba riby forked bike. Is that saying right? Right,
0: Yeah, the guy's Um, the guy's name, Riby Valentino.
2: So that's an 81 chassis or an 81 model. Or what is explain this riby bike to us and take us through this thing What with the genesis of it, how it works, how Donnie Hansen raced it. Talk about that a little bit.
0: So uh, it goes before honda i think if uh you look at pictures of roger's last year race in suzuki there's a r- design of a Reeby fork yeah. roger man and it's it's a steel it's not the ones you see on the hondas are built billet aluminum but it's a steel um i used to call them leading link fork but they're not really They're more complicated than a leading link fork but uh roger used it and roger tells me that one reason, one main reason that he ended up using this fork after trying it and working with Reby to develop it was he had been hit in the shoulder. I think it was at Lomol. But, you know, they have lanes of, of the track going one way and lanes going the other way. And somebody crashed and a bike, hit him in the shoulder and ripped him off the bike and kind of gave him a shoulder injury that didn't. right away it probably still hurts to this day and and he said when he rode with the Rebe fork it it didn't leverage his upper body or require the same upper body strength and it made a little bit easier on his shoulder but back to the reason that Rebe developed that fork was wheel trajectory he he just didn't like that on motocross bikes now you got longer travel and when you compress the front fork and And you transfer all this weight, the actual wheelbase is getting shorter in the front, and your rake and trail and all those things are in his mind changing too aggressively, so he developed this linkage for for you know the wheel path you, you hear a lot about this in in the bicycle industry from virtual pivots, and it 's almost the same discussion that, that he just wanted uh preferred. But it wasn't just, it was wheel trajectory. He had, you could change and control your anti-dive with that front fork. It had increased levels of torsional rigidity. It wouldn't twist. I mean, forks were 35 millimeter diameter in the in the early 70 and then they were 38 and 39 and 40, 41. But you still, up until upside down forks, you still kind of had a problem with twist and those forks. And a, And a third thing that they brought was You know, we also had been doing in the mid 70s, increasing suspension travel and putting so much focus on the rear suspension and the shocks, separating the air and the oil and the carbone. And then the front fork used rear shocks. And so even the level of hydraulic control the Reby fork had was superior, even just because of the, the sophistication of the shock absorber.
2: Right. So what was this bike? Was it a prototype that Roger developed to, to, for the riders to test it out? Uh, how and, and how close did this ever come to being put on a, on a works bike? Do you know?
0: Yes. Um, probably some bean counter could answer that better than <laughs> okay. myself. But, uh, but that fork was... Uh, so when Roger came, agreed to come to HRC, agreed to switch from Suzuki to Honda... He had a lot of faith in that fork. He had a lot of faith in this friend, engineer, Rebe Valentino, and uh, I think they, uh, he asked HRC if they would research that technology and further try to further develop it, and I think they made some kind of a licensing agreement between HRC and Rebe Valentino, and there was a few designs that he had that I think HRC looked at, and they worked on that fork a lot, you know, at first, it has it, it has a lot of qualities. I mean, you could you could drive a motorcycle into a curb with that front end, and it would go over like no other telescopic yeah. fork at the time would. But it did have a heavier feel to it because of the inertia. And so they tried to take the sus- suspension component, the shock. Originally, there was two shocks. It was a little bit heavy overall too. Yeah. They the one Honda here has at the collection. Um, they put the shock behind the number plate with some link bars. Eventually, they put the shock on the frame in a couple different locations. But I think the engineers in Japan ultimately learned that probably the biggest advantage was the hydraulics itself. And then I think they put more time and energy just into developing the cartridge fork, which ultimately, you know, uh, probably another thing with the Rebe fork i can imagine would in production it would be a very expensive uh, system yeah. i i believe i heard that but i don't know that for a fact. and Donnie hansen
2: did race with this fork
0: yeah uh, i believe uh, yeah. yeah he did race yeah, yeah. and uh that, that's pretty cool for sure yeah that thing looked like a pretty exotic kind of a yeah something something from outer space at the yeah, time really I mean, right. it wasn't even just the fork when you saw that fork even with the first hondas with rear, linkage rear suspension you were yep. and water cooling i think at the same time you're like what the hell is that so <laughs>
2: Uh, the next bike we have here, Daryl Schultz's 1982 bike. He won the championship on this bike. It has number one on it because it was raced at the Motocross of the Nations, famously uh, another Team USA win, an, an incredible Team USA win. This bike has a one-piece subframe slash airbox. What else, Dave, uh, from this bike captures your eye, and what makes this thing so special? Uh,
0: Daryl's bike. I mean, all the bikes in '82. I think that you know that uh, our team had done a lot of the prototyping and let's say 80 and 81 and then some of those things were starting to come to fruition in 82 and and also honda hrc they were getting their engineers spooled up and uh, the team our our team in american honda uh, we didn't win any of the nationals or supercross championships in 81 but we at the end of the year we went to europe with an all honda team for motocross the nations kind of a big upset and we won so once we won you know that sort of got the attention of japan i mean they (laughs) they they thought we were not a joke but you know they they weren't going to work real hard if you didn't have anybody that was going to do anything with it and so once once the team won that world championship we started getting a little bit more interest a little bit more respect mutual respect with japan and uh, the the bikes that we had in 82 were just all all three of them but especially the 250 for supercross Donnie hansen Probably getting ahead of myself you'll ask me but he won supercross tile 250 national but the same bike although it was air cooled um daryl schultz won the 500 class but i also believe that in 82 that bike you're talking about um they were just developing the full it's a 498 the, yep. the full displacement 500 two-stroke that was the first time that you know they raced that and uh, that monocoque airbox came from the 250 Supercross bike, and mm-hmm. they were just able to make a lightweight tail section, a tail section, maximize airbox uh, volume, yeah. and it was just a good design for that period of time. So it
2: wasn't so much um, it was well, I guess it was performance and weight reasons.
0: Yeah, for both, that. For it that was compete, both the right? engine performance and weight. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, when you look at the, uh, that was a great year. Absolutely, it's got the lower tanks. The 250s had the lower tanks for the first time. When you wheeled, the, are you team manager at this point? Yes, sir. Yeah, so when you wheeled these bikes out at Anaheim in 1982, it must have just blew everybody's minds, right? Uh, it was
0: impactful. Yeah. I think this stuff was pretty exotic and yeah. a lot of handmade. And there was a, actually a fabricator at HRC, and he would you know what a heliarch right yeah. for welding yeah. this guy that fabricated most of all those aluminum tanks and the tail sections he would do them on the ground and he would put the pedal under his butt and and go bap 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 with the with his <laughs> butt on the pedal that way he could hold the parts yeah. and tack them and yeah. weld them and oh, anyway wow. there was a lot he of was, so
2: he was an exotic welder also He was an exotic <laughs> welder yeah um, no that stuff yep. was
0: it was that in 82 uh, there's a, there's certain years you could pick not necessarily just because there works but even some of the production stuff but there's certain years where you know it's it's a it's an advantage you know the gap between what you put together or what yeah. you, you know what you had to go racing with in 82 it was a big gap between what Honda had and some of the other manufacturers.
2: Absolutely. Also around this time, Dave, uh, front suspension has cartridge forks now yeah. in 82, which is a huge step up, right?
0: Huge, yeah. huge. Up until that point, you know, I'll say it was mainly orifice dampening, which is kind of the opposite of what you like. Orifice dampening forks, they, they it's what people think they want, but you don't really want. You okay. know, it you, it moves really easy in the for beginning. Actually, yeah. It's almost like slower. Slower shaft speeds, but then when you hit something like a rock or a square edge bump at a hydraulic lock, so cartridge forks just did what we had for a rear shock in a long time. You had valving that you could get a certain amount of low-speed damping that you need for control, and and then in high speed it blows off. So it was it was a huge development advantage over some of the other manufacturers so
2: 1982 uh, and to me i agree as a as a guy from the outside just looking at it 1982 was the beginning of sort of the honda run of excellence the honda ingenuity the honda technology Uh, it it begins in 82. i agree yeah yeah. um another bike we have here is uh uh, there was a one-off event uh at carlsbad raceway for a number of years called the super bikers and it was a mishmash of flat trackers road racers and motocross guys Love to see this. Love to see this thing come back nowadays. By the way, um, and uh, this go Google it or YouTube it, people. It's on there. You won't believe it. Uh, and but this had big factory involvement for a number of years, and it was a source of pride if a motocrosser won it or you know Eddie Lawson or a dirt tracker. So we have a bike here. Uh, it's an '82. It was built for Steve Wise, who had won the event. Uh, he was the defending champion. It's got a floating rear disc on it. It's got a, a, a handmade swing arm on it. Um, and massive discs and the brakes. That were, the, the front master cylinder looks like it's you know off of a Honda Civic. Um, yeah. what, talk about building this thing. And is this something where the where the road race community of Honda comes together with the motocross group and they, they build the bike, or how does this work?
0: Well, the, that event the, was was promoted by a guy, not with us anymore, but uh, Gavin Tripp, and he was the promoter of the Carlsbad USGP. But um, he had kind of a relationship with the wide world of sports and. They wanted to create an event that was the epitome, I mean, that brought all the disciplines right. together, you know, so you had the dirt trackers, the motocrossers, the road racers, and, you know, and then you could kind of find out, well, yeah. who's the best, but you can't have motocrossers go and road race, or you can't have road racers go dirt track, so they tried to come up with a formula, and that's kind of what that track, mm-hmm. dictated by the track, and so the, as we, I mean, they had, you know, they, they, they pitched the event. Yeah. It sounds kind of exciting. It's after the season's over. Everybody's all, Roger's a racer. I mean, I'm, I'm a racer. You get all wound up yeah. to do this. But you sort of have to imagine, well, what's going to be effective if, yes, there's a drag strip there, but then it goes on the dirt, and it's got all these dirt track turns, and then it comes. So, And the bike we would have to base it on at Honda would have been, you know, RC500, yep. you know. At schultz's the, bike basically schultz's yeah. bike and that was the 82 that actually was the last year that we raced it that might have been the last year they they ran the event not quite sure but no I, no I believe, uh, 84 i believe 84 yeah. so th- the first time we raced it was in uh, 79 and i think our bikes were 450s at the time displacement and we didn't have disc brakes and uh so we were doing things i mean the, but the speeds they're going 120 yeah. 130 miles an hour yeah. Maybe not quite as much on the 450. In 82, that was a full 498. Yeah. It was fast. It was, so So we had to, uh, we had drum brakes. Well, we got to cool the brakes. We were drilling big holes in the backing plate and it just wasn't competitive. You know, the, the, the drum brakes were turning to powder and the dust is flying all over the bikes. And because of the brakes mainly, we weren't competitive in 79 and 80, 81 we built a bike similar to what you see here in 82 so steve weiss won which we put disc brakes on the bike we had to float the brake on the yeah. bike because of the wheel chatter at the end of the drag strip on the asphalt
2: is this is this uh, yeah. is this developed with the road race guys or no this is a motocross thing only no
0: no i, I don't know no i think i just sort of out. i just sort of had to figure it out right hey get a rotor off of uh, whatever so how much travel you know you can't like, you know, we just had a discussion about increasing suspension travel, but you don't increase suspension travel without engineering the chassis. Doing something else, that's yeah. That's considering that, right? Well, now we're going the other way. Well, how much suspension travel do you think we can get away with and not screw the chassis up? That's kind of, you, you can't just go from 300 down to 150, really, you know. Yeah. So we sort of winged it on suspension travel, and we put a lot of brake on the bike because we didn't have any brake the previous year. And uh, that 82 event, there was, a, there was an uh, engine tuner in Japan, ironically, by the name of Mr. Kawasaki, and he was, he was just making the 498s. Okay. And uh, I think before that, we probably had, there was a bike called a 476. It went 450, 476, 498. And in any case, this guy making this full-size 500, and he goes, hey, you want me to make some, an engine kit for that race? I didn't even know he knew about that yeah. race. And I'm like, yeah. yeah so they they were fast i remember that was one of my favorite races to this day to watch because steve weiss was you know was a two-time defending champion now we had danny magoo chandler an absolute madman I, I would call him a wild card but you're probably you know more accurate yeah. and uh then we had the two harley guys and those 750 xrs they were fast and springer yep. he knows how to ride and sure. forget the other rider off the top of my head they maybe you know. do so it was two harleys and two hondas and it was just an iconic race of on on the high speed road race course the harleys would get us by a bit and then we'd get back into maneuverability and we weren't it's not like we had anything big on them or but we just had different attributes and
2: a great race and then it's funny you say that. I worked at Yamaha for a number of years, and so they, Bob Oliver uh, was a yeah. was, was the guy there that I learned a lot from, great guy. And I could tell in talking to Bob, much like I can hear in your voice, the pride that they had, because Eddie Lawson won. Yeah. And, and yeah. so they built the YZ 490 for Eddie Lawson yeah. and they beat, you know, all the other factory guys. Yeah. So and they they really worked a lot on that bike. And you could tell the pride that Bob had in helping Eddie Lawson win that event, kind of like you with the Steve Wise. And like, so it did seem like the Super bikers race brought all of you factory guys well, out of it's, the woodwork.
0: It's, it's you know, you have a box, a bunch of parts in your box, yeah. but it's a clean sheet of paper. Sure. Like yeah. no one is giving you a uh a floor plan as to how yeah. this thing's going to lay out you know so you kind of got to imagine well it's this much it's this much dirt track it's this much road race and it's this much mo- you know so yeah. here's what we need to put together and it was everybody's best guess lawson was phenomenal that might have been the first year he was yeah he was really good right so bob did a good job he
2: did he was i could just tell that they, they had pride in beating yeah. honda and yeah. the other oems um diverting a little bit from from the from the 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 individual bikes we have here at the honda museum um a couple couple of things so you talk about 82 being the start of this of this run of excellence for honda as i understood it you got the bikes built in a crate at at, from japan your works bikes were delivered to you guys in a crate and then the mechanics would take them back apart and you know assemble them lube them up and 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 get to know the bike well i'm interested though how, how does the do the riders not get to ride the 82 bike in any form until it shows up in California? Or How does the testing of a works bike go so that you guys could say, hey, uh, lowered tank, yes or no. Uh, we don't want a disc. We want drums or vice versa. Or does Japan say, this is what we've got. This is what we think is the ultimate race weapon. Here it is. How does that process go? Can you take us through it? Uh,
0: I think there's, I think uh, before, You know at some point in the year then then uh, there's a meeting of the minds you know so you'd have the top HRC the engineers come together and Roger and I uh, had really good relationships with good working relationships with that group whether we'd have to fly to Japan or they would be here for some of the races and then there would be discussions about the evolution you know Um, okay yep I, I I in the design studio I worked for a short period of time but there was a you know, whether it's a revolution or an evolution, revolution being super big changes, which sometimes are more theoretical and based, you know, engineers think, well, this would really hit it out of the park if we, you know, or evolution's more, we got something, it works pretty good, here's our weaknesses, how do we improve on that without screwing up anything else? And so I'd say it starts with meetings and discussions and planning and, you know, just would be Roger and I with the engineers and the project leaders. Mm And then I would say they put something together and they have their own test group in yep, Japan. Yep. Sometimes it's, you know, I guess people want to say it's not exactly the same and it's not. I mean, um, Honda also has a thing that says go to the spot. So engineers have to, it's not like the Japanese really had that level of supercross right or even supercross track as right. we do in the States. Right. So it wasn't like they could really evaluate and set up, but they weren't they weren't that bad i mean they rode they were yep. they were very confident they were good at testing and kind of sorting out a lot of the hardware and uh so then there would be an event let's say we would go at the end of the year toward the end of the year we would go over for japan supercross and then we'd say okay you know try this or Here, try here's that. a base
2: model or something yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'd,
0: they'd, that would still be a you know they might even have a a, a name for it like PP one or PP two, or, okay. you know. Yeah, if, uh, yeah. right. I don't know. That's more for production, pre-production one, pre-production two. Yep. But for a race, they probably have stages. Yep. And uh, so we would go test like an early prototype. Yeah, this seems good. This seems like it still needs something different. And then it, then it'd show up, you know. And a lot of times with uh, uh, a few optional parts, you know, if it wasn't exactly a home run the way it came, yep. you'd have a couple optional link ratios or sometimes even chassis geometry in the early stages, and then you would narrow that down,
2: so. Yeah, I've heard the mechanics wouldn't really know what they were racing until they opened no, up that crate. No. And there is the, the And and, and,
0: to, and to be honest, we did a lot of R&D in racing at that time. Like it, uh, you know, I, I would say that we really tried to get on top or ahead of, uh, you know, the ball or whatever you want to call it, the bar. And uh, you know we were probably to a fault. You know, I mean, I was cutting frames up. Unfortunately, they, I, I, when I one of my first trips to Japan, they had these beautiful frame jigs, and they were very universal. They were they were something I'd never even seen in the yeah. states. But they had these. They were versatile enough to where they would do the trials bikes on the same, and they would do Freddie Spencer's road racers and all the different motocross bikes with the same fixture of course it was different plates and different engine mounts and everything else you know and i had to have one of these things you know i didn't know how i was going to get it but i had i still have it today so i was good friends with this chassis designer yasuki sarumi and uh, please i beg, just give me the blueprints for that thing and i ended up making two of them one of them I had over at uh, R&D later yeah. and one still in racing wow
2: wow so i was so you were tinkering yourself doing uh, things. a lot
0: yeah. a lot i mean i was uh, by this point in time for better for worse you know and it's not like they were all home runs i know how to go backwards too <laughs> and uh, i mean i would just cut stuff up and you know you're and 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 again it's a, it's how all these things work together you know and sometimes your suspension components and or settings, they have this character. So to maximize that character, you know, you need a chassis that sort of does this and, you know, you're learning along the way. And I was, and at this point in time, now you're working with engineers that are, you know, what are your limitations? You have works regulations, your buddies with the chassis, your your counterpart. And I mean, even though I was a manager, chassis sort of evolved into being pseudo kind of my thing. Yeah. And, uh but I could change engine castings. I could, you know, yeah. you, you you get late in the year and then I remember people ask why did they change the chain from the right to the left? I mean, we would do those things on a whim, you know, yeah. like we went from drum to disc brakes and the chain had been on some of the best bikes. These 82 bikes, the chain was on the right. Mm-hmm. Then they, we went to disc brakes and they did not want, of course, the the brake pedal, the master cylinder on the right. Yep. Now you got the disc. You know the drum brake is on the same side as the sprocket. If you got a conical hub, now you have a disc on the opposite side of the sprocket. Now have- so now the brake line yeah. had to cross over near the shock spring, near the linkage. Now it got hot. Yeah. They 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 didn't want, and even the uh maybe there was probably even the liability or durability you know they didn't want the hydraulic line near the shock so and also you can take the whole brake system on and off the bike if it's on the same side so you see people hanging up so i mean you're like talking the engineer well then put the counter shaft sprocket on the other side all right you know i'll go do that yeah so it was that what was the lead time in sort of changes like that they, they they we everybody was pretty focused pretty, on building yeah. the best stuff. Pretty pretty aggressive. And I would say that things were happening at a pretty rapid pace. Right, right. I don't remember how many months, or but yep. uh, I I remember Yamaha raced a rotary valve 125 for a short period of time. And then you know, there was, pro. I think before that, Can-Am, Jimmy Ellis, and those things were fast, right? So, but they had problems. They were a little wide in the intake track. And so then Honda, built a motor they put the rotary valve on the back of the motor and it had a uh, mechanical centrifugal clutch on it um, you know to where it had variable timing and uh, anyway it didn't work out for a few reasons and then we had one of the top engineers of the company from from HRC over here he came over for this test well after we had that test well let's cut it up and make a case read out of it okay so then we cut and weld and Bondo and and then that had some qualities too some of it was better some of it maybe not and then but he took this whole it, when he when he arrived he had the most beautiful mag casting I mean this thing was a piece of art you would just have in your you make a And lamp. when he left and when he left you know I was
2: thinking <laughs> Now it's a case yeah
0: you know so don't go to America anymore those guys will screw it up you know so
2: did you, can you point to any specific things that you did to uh, any of these guys, Hanson, Bailey, uh, O'Mara, any of these bikes that was a change that they got from Japan that you did that they immediately liked? Was there something that you could think of, an example of two, one or two things with, that your, your R&D was, was put to use?
0: Um, I would say that a lot of the chassis designs, uh, let's say just geometry, yeah. And uh, even even the 82 bike, you know, when they came with uh, the low gas tank with the vacuum pump, yep. I thought that that was indirectly or directly influenced by. So in 81, we had water-cooled bikes. We had air-cooled bikes. And, you know, the, the water-cooled bikes ran a little bit better, but yep. they felt a little bit heavier. They had a higher center of gravity ergonomically they were not quite as good, and the riders didn't like going into a turn with radiators and shrouds, and their yep. their legs would get wider, and even some of the shrouds would catch on hay bales, or, you know, so Don't then, put them
2: on the handlebars, though, Dave. Don't <laughs> That's put them on the not handlebars. a good
0: idea. So, we, we, so, about halfway through the year, and again, yep. we weren't winning nationals at the time. Yep. You know, we had these bikes, but then I think Howerton and Hannah and Barnett and Glover, uh, maybe, a, probably a few others, you know, so Donnie Hanson, Johnny O'Meara and Donnie Hanson, they were, they were getting better. They were becoming more competitive in the 125 nationals. Donnie was coming a little bit better in the, you know, instead of a distant fifth, you yeah. know, he was Closer. the sixth. He, he was, those guys were some more in, more in sight at the end of the races. And so I got a wild hair to just take an air-cooled bike. If they like the ergonomics of the air-cooled bike, which is on some of these, like Schultz's bike, that yep. aluminum gas tank. So build an air-cooled bike with a water-cooled engine and lower the radiators, mainly because if you looked at Barnett's 250, they had one radiator, but it was pretty low on the bike. And he rode that thing like it was a little slot car. So we lowered the radiators. Paul Turner at the time ended up being the rock shock guy later, but he ended up, he could fabricate exhaust pipes. That was a big limitation. We didn't make our own pipes. so. Anyway, we lowered the radiators, had to make shrouds, had to make mounts, he routed anew, all the water lines, routed the pipe. They loved that bike and it had a lower C G the ergonomics were improved, it got rid of all the negatives and and it enhanced the positives and So they're looking at the gas. I I really think that when that bike went to Japan and uh, Honda was really ramping it up for eighty two, then what do they say that they have a saying if a little does a little good a lot do a lot of good so so then japan saw well they all like it they lowered the center of gravity they they you know uh, increased mass centralization we'll take that to a whole new level so i'm pretty sure that that evolved from our prototype in 1981. wow
2: and when you do that in 81 do you need permission do you (laughs) No. It's you and Roger. No,
0: and it's just mainly just me. Yeah. Okay. No, I I I was the crazy guy right, in dream right. up stuff. Okay. And awesome. I mean, I right. try to get Roger to buy in, and Roger and I are, we're very much uh, on the same page. Yeah. You know, I mean, Roger. I'm not saying he's not technical, but I mean, Roger would allow me to, yeah. to get off in left field. He's the rider, and, and, and he's yeah. he's a rider. He'd pull me back if he thought I was lost, and right. you know, but uh, no, I mean probably the benefit of uh you know being the manager and sort of evolving into that position I'd had all the other roles and and again no American Honda racing was not really a corporate activity you know we dealt with engineers in Japan I mean I had people in sales maybe they signed some of the checks that subsidized racing I think there was a shared value um you know marketing people obviously they got Exposure from racing and engineering, they got some technical benefit from developments in racing. So, I, I don't know what that balance yeah. was. Somebody else did the books. I just spent the money, you know. And but, um, you know, but 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 nobody really. I mean, they. I had managers of American Honda said we don't we don't know anything about racing. We don't want to know anything about racing. So <laughs> yeah. you you guys just, just handle it. So sit there in your hole. for a period they're... of time. It was like that, but toward the end of the 80s after production regulation Japan engineering softened a little bit and then you know corporate got more involved so
2: the next bike we have here Dave is the 84 uh, 500 of David Bailey he wins the championship in 83 uh the 250 outdoor title and the 250 supercross title in 83 would you say this 83 bike was similar to 82 was there a big big uh, jump for you for that year I got to go back and look at what an
0: 83 is, but I think they started to mess with water cooling in 83, and so it was quite a bit. I mean, there was a big thing with uh, exhaust pipe. They still wanted to run a low tank, and the exhaust pipe volume of a 500 is quite a bit bigger than a 250, so packaging of a low gas tank, radiators, exhaust pipe, there was a lot of things to balance out.
2: So this 84 bike we have he's the grand national champion hence the blue number plate yeah. with the uh yeah. yellow number one um he's got a big exhaust guard on it for heat i imagine yeah so that would have been that would have been a a, a um, um a cliff white special um uh, you know what i'd ha-
0: hate to say i don't remember but i kind of don't remember if right, that was right, japan right. or cliff it might have been cliff
2: and so in 84 david bailey moves to the 500 class he races the defending champion brock glover and bailey puts a hurt on glover the uh, disparity day between the 84 uh, hrc 500 and the 84 yz 490 that brock glover's racing is pretty vast
0: yeah well we 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 thought so but i never get overconfident about those things right. i mean it still kind of comes down to a rider, you know pulling it off and Brock was a hell of a racer even in spite of all that and I believe he even won the following year so you know David was but Dave like I, you know you can go over all the way up until Ricky Johnson I mean Dave was an excellent 500 racer there was a lot of guys like Ricky that really good 250 racer but they used a lot more throttle and they were a little sloppier and they bounce off things i'm not saying ricky was sloppy he's not but but when they got on a 500 you don't ride like that and bailey was really precise and he was one of the world's best if not right so
2: yeah the 84 500 this thing is starting to again just get into a work of art territory for honda and that leads us into the 1985 models Uh, The first 1985 model I want to talk about is Bob Hanna's bike here. Um, This is the last year of the works bike rule. This is maybe the pinnacle of a a factory bike. Uh, A tiny radiator on the left side, a bigger radiator on the right. Uh, Hanna liked the rear drum. Other guys put a rear disc on. This had the uh, electronic power valve, Dave. It had a a fuel pump on it. Uh, Take us through this 85-250.
0: So the 85-250 was... Um, probably one of the more expensive bikes that we ever had to purchase from Japan and whatever that agreement is you know you're it's a bike but it's also engineering that support and parts and things like that but uh it was the the year prior to production regulation in 86 so you kind of got to look at the 85 bike like it was really information gathering I mean yeah it was it was to make an exotic race bike but um let's just take on the 250 uh they had a Uh, power valves a real um, I think they called it HPP they put a power valve on the on the 250 but it was electronically controlled with servos and so we would have to have an engineer there with you know their laptop and cable and program how it was working and you know program the opening and closing it was in a constant state of tuning refinement even during racing and all of that was being factored in sent to Japan uh, for their development of what was to be the mechanical version of the same system.
2: Did you know the production rule was coming in before eighty five or when do you remember when that when that basis of the AMA production yeah, rule coming yeah. in? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's no way eighty five is way too late in the game. So we yeah. probably you know, I know Kenny Clark was lobbying him for it sure. probably years before that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure Clark, yeah. I'm sure in eighty three at least in '83, I, I probably it was even an into '82. I mean, the '82 bikes were so good that probably even after that, people were starting to make noise that you know we gotta trim some of the some of the exotic out of Honda's development. So, so
2: the '85, the power valve was working off a servo that would open and close at a certain RPM. Yes, a- and. Do you remember there being any hiccups with that or do you remember it working pretty smoothly or there was
0: all there's always hiccups <laughs> with everything in racing yeah. but uh there one hiccup i can't remember you might have known about it so that's why you asked me but uh so jim felt put a brand new wire loom on his bike and cherried the bike all out before even and there was a it might have been a grand prix
2: yep 85 usgp
0: yeah so in any case Everybody, you know, at Unadilla, they only ran those big races. They didn't run a bunch of amateur races, and they let grass grow. Ward Robinson was the promoter. And so, but when the grass grows to be two feet high, and everybody goes out on their 125, or let's say even 250, they come in and say, my bike feels slow because it's loamy dirt for, you know, 13, 14 inches deep. So Johnny Umera comes in, and he goes, this thing just doesn't feel like it's running right, you know? And we say, no, it's just the grass. back out he goes back out he comes in he's like no it it's it's a dog on bottom and it's flat on top so we bring the things into the pits and got the engineer with you know going over in fact it was so something in the wire harness had been wired incorrectly and so the exhaust valve was working exactly opposite so it was open (laughs) at low rpm closed at high rpm RPM. so that was a pretty good hiccup but no i mean that was No, I mean, we never had a problem with that system in racing, no. The the only thing I would say is it was a really fast bike. It felt like a really fast bike. And so the riders, you know, they were like, we've never ridden anything like this. I mean, we don't even, usually we went to, um, what do they call it? The the California series, Golden State series to warm up and everybody kind of get the bike set up before we even start off the Supercross series. And then the riders like, these things are so good, we don't even want to show the other teams what we have, which is kind of ironic yeah. in that um, it, I'm sure it was fast. I'm sure it did feel fast, but as far as an effective race tool and, and as much talent as we had on the team, yeah. we didn't really accomplish that much with that bike. Yeah. I'm sure Japan got a lot of information, but... David Bailey—he probably—he probably irritates him every time I mention this, but uh, I witnessed him looping out. I've never seen riders loop out, <laughs> coming out of a corner. I think it was in Atlanta, Georgia, just right before the finish line. The thing just rop, just threw him on the ground like a more of a rookie move, right? Yeah, yeah. And so uh the championship went down to the last race at pasadena rose bowl so lachine was still in the points it was four it was points between, back yeah between jeff ward and ronnie and then he ended up throwing it away in the whoop. So it was super fast not ultra controllable in race situations
2: now this is the advent of a rear disc brake but like as i mentioned hannah liked the drum right what do you remember about that and the other riders picking a disc and hannah just being old school was like not nah, keep the uh 1980s drum on there yeah there was uh
0: i think disc disc brakes of course they brought more power mm-hmm. you know and that's in most circumstances a good thing but the feel and controllability were always and refined and when i say sometimes it was too much too soon and for bob in the front they were able to kind of get him happy when they were playing with a, like a braided line doesn't have much flex and so it would be more abrupt and they could play with the size of the pistons and the master cylinders and things and even the caliper but in the rear brake he it he just did not like having that much brake, and and it was more of a feel thing right. So. The seat
2: goes all the way up to the gas tank. Bob's seat is incredibly wide on this bike. You can yeah. see that. That's, yeah. a, that's a pretty unique feature. I remember seeing photos of Lachine's bike, really skinny, uh, going all the way up to the gas tank. So there was adjustability for your seats on that.
0: Yeah, I was, I'm not quite sure why it was that wide up at the gas tank i thought it was a i mean i know there's a balance and i know there's a limit a lot of times people think narrower narrower is good but you also have to kind of hold the rider in a certain place so he doesn't move too much and maybe it serves that purpose but
2: one of the things on the 85s that i found interesting that you pointed out was they had a they had adjustable almost shock struts going to the steel frame aluminum struts that the shock bolted to. And these things look really cool, Dave, but they didn't work the greatest, did they? So,
0: again, because 85 was the predecessor of production regulation in 86, uh, and yes, normally we have adjustable, you know, different linkages, you know, so that would be the, the rocker and the pull rod, but uh, this bike was designed to where even the upper shock mount, uh, it had a billet mount to where you could move that if you wanted to, or let's say, you know, I mean, and also the pull rod mounted to the frame that all those points were adjustable you have to make which seems car. cool in theory seems cool in ther- theory but uh it actually when um went with exactly the same pivot points and the same motion ratio and the same same shock settings between 84 and 85 the suspension worked terrible in 85 it was way too soft and bottomed nobody could understand that so they would you know rebuild the shock and and firm up the setting a little bit. Still, way too soft in bottom, and it ended up just being any flex that was related to those suspension hard points was a negative, and it and it had an adverse effect on suspension performance.
2: Smallest difference in material from steel to aluminum, even though it's the same yeah. same uh, uh dimensions and same uh, uh, link, same ratios. Yeah, it affected the bike. Did it? Yeah, I'm not even yeah. sure the material could be part of that. Yep. And and I'm sure it is a
0: factor. I'm not going to say, but it even if you have things precision machined and mounted with bolts and there's even if you don't think there's any flex at all or any movement or any uh, there is a little bit and it has it translates into.
2: Would you would you play with swing arms around this era? Were you guys getting different lengths of swing arms? I know that's something that um i've seen on other factory bikes would you would you do much of that or would would we would, did a, we did a bit yeah. we did a bit but uh, it wasn't something where hey we're going to a sand track we're going to put no, a longer swing arm no. on nothing like that no
0: no we did a bit i know that like the 500 you know like on the schultz's bike oh, yeah. it would have a 15 millimeter longer arm than the 250 and a lot of times we would challenge put it on the 250 to see if that was a if that translated to a positive. and. I don't think it stuck. So
2: uh, something that really came along um, around a little bit later than this era, but comes to mind for me, twin chamber forks. Are you starting to see this kind of technology in the mid '80s, or is that still a ways away? A little bit?
0: No, 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 no for sure. Okay. They brought that. I can remember the first time we tried that was, let me think. It was no, you're right. It wasn't in the '80s. It was '91. Okay, so yeah. It was '91, and we got. It was Jeff Stanton was national number one. Uh, I have to I have to pick the right year, so I don't know when John Michelle, you know John Michelle Bale. He won in '91,
2: yeah. Bale did. '91,
0: yeah. Yeah, so it must have been in '90. Okay. So uh, Honda had a design for twin chamber fork, mm-hmm. you know, for obvious reasons it 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 kept the air separate from the oil, and also they could make a better bottoming system, right. which was probably the main reason. And they probably didn't like pay Steve Simons for their previous bottoming system sure for royalties But they came with that and they came with a cylinder which ended up being in production 92 it had a different exhaust valve in it and And the yeah, we tried that stuff at unadilla both of them And they just kind of wanted before they committed full-scale production. Mm-hmm. They wanted, you know, Jeff to try them in racing.
2: So, okay uh, uh so this 85 bike this is, as I mentioned, this is the last year of the works bike. Production rule is coming in. And again, you mentioned you guys didn't win in 85. It yeah. wasn't a successful year on the track. This bike was amazing. Uh, David Bailey has told me different things about it being flawed. You've mentioned it too. It's a case of almost uh two trick. Yeah, is yeah. it such it's a thing, it's Dave? <laughs> a,
0: it's, a, it's a case of two trick. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it was over the top and, right. you know, it lacked some what do they say practical application or controllability issues yeah, really right
2: the next bike we have here from 85 dave is ron lachine's outdoor 125 championship bike now you did win in that class um this bike i watched some old videos of this bike it looks like a rocket ship uh, compared to suzuki's and yamaha's at that time dave
0: yeah it's fast yep. the the 125s in that era um the ones that mickey diamond rode and then the ones that were on lachine i think this is the predecessor, the previous bike yep. they were really fast we had an engine tuner by ironically by the name of mr kawasaki and and that exhaust system on that bike it didn't have a true in the cylinder power right. valve it had an attack system they called it which is a plenum chamber that changed the volume of the header pipe of the chamber and they ran
2: really really good yep. really good what was the what was the idea behind the short radiator on the left and then you talk about mass centralization you talk about getting the weight low and you have a tiny radiator on the left and a long one on the right what was the idea behind that and did it affect the handling and the chassis at all or obviously not but- so
0: you know the best guy the best guy to ask that is johnny O'Mara because okay. johnny O'Mara was the 125 Hondas for years and, right. but the the way the pipes were routed on those bikes prior to this bike you're talking about um, the exhaust bike, the exhaust pipe would burn the rider's leg like over and over weekend, you know, he's practicing and then racing. And I think it's just the way the pipe laid out on the bike and where the midsection was. And it would, it would cook the inside of Johnny's uh, left leg. I'm sure if you look at his legs, I don't know if you do, yeah. you know, but, uh, anyway, he's got a pretty good lifetime scar on the, on the, so If they shorten the radiator up on the left side, they could keep more of the midsection of the exhaust pipe in that location as opposed to back where the rider's leg was. So it was mainly packaging and trying to save the riders.
2: Um, So this is a pretty cool bike. Great, great uh, story behind this. Ron uh, really cleaned up with the Nationals. He got a flat tire in one moto. I think his cylinder head, uh, I think the cylinder head stays broke or they pulled the head off and he lost his coolant. Other than that, I think he won just about every moto in '85. Yeah. So it was a great summer for Ron Lachine.
0: Yeah, he, he, Ron was dominant. The bike was really good. Our, our 125s from his era all the way through Mickey Diamond was—they were—they were really fast. And uh, and Ron, like you said earlier, I, I, he might—I mean—was kind of a class above everybody else at that time as yeah. well. So
2: and his practice bikes didn't get many hours on them, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> no,
0: no, none of Ron, none of uh, Ron's practice bikes got much time on them.
2: Uh, but actually, that leads me to the next question. Around this era, their practice bikes were full race bikes or full work bikes? As they're, much as possible. Yeah, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah.
0: Most, I mean, we did a pretty good job, as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, there was an era where we didn't have enough stuff, so there were some differences, but that's problematic. They're not used to it. They're not putting the time on the same thing they're racing, so we tried to get... We try to improve that. Okay.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Racer X Films and Pulp MX. Uh, I'm Steve Mathis. Thanks for uh, watching, man. Appreciate it. This is part two of the Honda Works Bikes Talk with the great Dave Arnold, AMA Hall of Famer. Dave, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, check out part one if you haven't seen it already. And uh, thanks to Jordan Powell, by the way, too, for the, being the man behind the camera. He's doing a great job on this. All right. So, Dave, we left off at the end of the Works era. Sayonara, uh, the, the the pinnacle of motocross bikes, uh, and now we're going to the production bike for the AMA Racing. But, wait, in Europe, in 1986, they still had factory bikes. Uh, Dave Thorpe, uh, Eric Gabors, those guys, you didn't have anything to do with that. Obviously, you were here in the U.S. What were the 80, and I, we saw them at the Carlsbad USGP that year in 86. That's the only time the Americans saw them. What was any different about the European works bikes that those guys rode, do you
0: remember? Um, you know, it was getting a little bit less, first of all, we did a lot of our testing at the same time, so we were sort of, even the Europeans, I mean, and, and a lot of the development, the chassis suspension systems, a lot of that was, not all of it, but a lot of it was done in the States, and so when we were in Japan, testing what you know the, the races were gonna have in the States, you yeah, know we'd go Bors and thorpe and those guys would be over there doing the same thing their bikes were a little bit different that bike you're talking about they were playing with different bi- power valves on the 500 if uh i think kawasaki might have already gone to a power valve on their 500 and so honda had uh, a couple of different systems one with twin valves like they had on the 250 and one with just one single valve on one side so i think that's what they yep. that bike ended with but yeah it had it had the handmade swing arms, it had some handmade air boxes. it it was more of a works bike. I, I think it was less exotic than some of the stuff we had prior to that point, but they still tipped their hat to, you know, they had fabricators that wanted to stay busy and a little bit of money to spend, so they were nice bikes.
2: So 86 comes, production rules in effect, now you have to use the same swing arm, the same engine cases, the same tank, the same frame, all these things have to be standardized to your production bikes. And according to your competitors, this was when your winning was going to stop because you guys didn't have the budget anymore to have works bikes. And so your dominance was going to come to an end, Dave, except you guys won everything in 1986. You won the 125s, the 250s, the 500s, uh, Mickey Diamond, Rick Johnson, David Bailey. Uh, It was an incredible bike. So the production bike in 86, when do you see what's coming down the road for production? You mentioned earlier that the 85s, you were learning things for production how, how does that figure up into an 86 production bike well
0: on honestly uh we the and i were involved even from the early 80s i mean even from you know, even the 79 and 80 we were involved with development of production bikes and we'd have to do we those were a different group of engineers it's a different part of the company but it was almost double double duty anyway you know we'd have to go through all these meetings and all this testing for the work side and then go racing and then we'd have to swing back around and find to fit it in and do the same thing for the production group. And ironically, you know, you do things with the production group and you're dealing with a different group of engineers. And sometimes you could, it's, they're just bikes. I mean, yeah. some are, these are more expensive and a bit more exotic, but you still got to make everything work, you know? So we would learn things from the production side that we would share with race group, HRC. We would learn things at HRC, we would share with production group and honestly, those groups were enough different, physically separated, but they were sort of competitive to each other in a way to where a lot of times I was a little bit bewildered, like, well, can't you just go talk to those guys and get that information? But a lot of times Roger and I would end up being the the go-betweens. Okay,
2: all right. So um, the first bike we have here, 86 Production, number number three is on this bike. This is Mickey Diamond's 86 125 Championship bike. Yeah. Um, and that J- Johnny O'Mara rode at the motocross, the nations in 86. So it's got his number on it. This is Mickey's bike though. Uh, what can you remember? What can you, what can you tell us? And what do you remember about this motorcycle?
0: What, what I, what I remember about the 125 and the 250 was that, you know, in, in 85, you know, or in our last segment, we talked about how exotic the bikes were and, yeah. but we didn't really get the results. It's almost like they were so trick, they were so fast, but there was a element of rideability that, was problematic Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like all of those qualities got transferred to the production bikes but they were rideable you know i think the production bike might have been one or two horsepower less mainly due to let's say for the the 250 it was an electronically controlled power valve versus mechanical but this one was kind of hard to ride and this one was very rideable you know so um just the friction that some of the the mechanical it, it, those bikes were exceptionally good. And also Honda put a lot into those first production bikes. Well, all their production bikes, but they got mag cases. They just have a lot of, uh, they almost, it's, it's almost a limited edition works bike in production. They're, they're really nice bikes. I mean, it's almost like we had learned enough about what worked and what didn't work during the first half of the eighties that they were able to apply just what worked for production in 86.
2: Now, this bike, you, you hired a kid from uh, Yorba Linda uh, who rode 500 Husqvarna's. You put him on a 125 Honda named Mickey Diamond, and he wins this championship. Now, Mickey's a great rider. There's no doubt about that. But I watched some videos of this bike, Dave, uh, some old nationals. and. He looks like he's got like on. A, he looks like he's on like a 175. Uh, this bike is fast.
0: It's really, it's really fast. Right. I'm not just saying that. I'm a Honda guy. It's <laughs> yeah, they're all. But that that 125 that Mickey Diamond rode in '86 and Johnny rode later for yep. motocross to nations, it it was a really fast bike. And as far as uh, for taking credit for hiring Mickey Diamond, I I just do what I'm told. Danny Laporte is responsible for hiring really? Mickey because they were both. I don't know Husqvarna.
2: They were at Husqvarna. They in were Husqvarna guys, yeah. and
0: I remember right before, I and mean, Danny was on our team. Fortunately, for a few years, and then he was going to go to Europe to race Grand Prix. And I remember whatever the last race was, he just flat told me, "He goes, one guy, no one's looking at, and I'm telling you, he's way better than you think he is, Mickey Diamond." And he said those bikes are so slow. <laughs> he said, "I want you to watch." Maybe it was before the, that race weekend. He said, "He has to look." down the next straightaway in order to see how revved up to get this thing in the turn, and which is in fact how he rode. I mean, yeah. he he had to kind of way override the bike in order just to put all the parts together. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, he was, and, and another, so that was the tip. That was a suggestion from Danny Laporte. Another thing we do at the end of the year, we have these, we get together and we do all these, uh, this is way after testing, yeah. way after practice. You make everything look good and they got all their gear and you go out and do press photos. And I remember Ken Barrique at the time was doing all the Honda's press kits. And, and I'm not begging, you know, like a Marty Smith, you would never get a bad picture of Marty Smith. You know, you would have some guy, well, there's not enough Honda, there's not enough this or that. But I mean, it was always a good picture. Hard to find a bad one. Jeremy McGrath, not the same era, never a bad picture of right. Jeremy McGrath. Jeff Stanton, like, I'm not bagging on Jeff, but you had to go sure. through a whole bunch of photos to, all right, that one's probably almost good enough. You know, Mickey Diamond, he's just a stylish, always in the right place. You know, he was like a it's like a McGrath and a Smitty, you know.
2: All right. So we've talked about your history, of the Motocross the Nations team, of course, the pulling off the upset win in 19, 1981. You uh, you also were there for Danny Magoo Chandler's sweep of the trophy and the Motocross the Nations in 82. Yep. And then you were there in '86 when Johnny O'Mara on a 125 beat everybody outside of his teammate. Uh, yeah. What was a more impressive motocross of Nations ride. Johnny O on this bike or, or or something else?
0: Well, impressive. I mean, they all. I mean, being the upset in '81. Yep. That was. Uh, I don't know what you call it. That was just the just pinnacle. The yeah. pinnacle. Yeah. You know, '82, all four motos with Danny. I mean, that was really impressive, right? Yeah. But the whole team they were solid. I don't know, they didn't finish one, two, three, but right. you know, in 86, they were one, two, three, yep. and to have a 125 beat, um, so parked next to us at that track, that was Majora, I believe. Yep. Parked next to us was Hawk and Carlquist, which I admit, and I got along really well with, but he, you know, he, uh, I know what swearing in Swedish sounds like now, because he was throwing stuff around his truck and FIFA
2: fucking 125, or you have to bleat that, but anyway. Uh, and you guys were let. this was Johnny's last ride at Honda, an epic career that started uh, in 1981 at, 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 at Honda, delivered a Supercross championship, an outdoor championship, and he had been told he was getting let go, and so he was a little angry about that also. And, you know, he took all of that anger and a great motorcycle and put on a show. Yeah, it
0: doesn't make it any better. Roger and I both were, the whole team were sad to lose Johnny. He was part of uh, the team that we built from sure. the ground up. Starting in the early 80s. And anyway, I guess sort of the, just the way the team went, and, in, in, um, you know, he wasn't going to be able to stay with us for a, probably a few reasons. But it was really sad at that event that A, we knew he wasn't going to stay with us, but B, those three guys, I mean, you know, there's pictures of them kind of staging a jump where they're all high fiving each other in midair and everything. I mean, I, I wish it uh, I wish it didn't change, and I wish nothing, but, you know, Ricky went on to get injured shortly after that, yeah. and so.
2: Yeah. The next bike we have here is David Bailey's 86 uh, CR500. Yeah. He won the championship on this bike. Him and Rick Johnson battled all year long, and David got the 500 title, uh, his, thir- his second 500 title in three years. Um, and again, we talk about that 85 bike being so cool, being so amazing. Brock Glover beat him. On a on a YZ490, right? Yeah. A- and so now we're back to 86, and David has a great series again, proving again that this bike is an amazing production bike.
0: Yeah, it was a great. I mean, all 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 the bikes in 86, all three of them were real well balanced packages. You know, with I mean, the, they, I guess I, they all had very good qualities, but they also didn't have any negatives that were going to bite you in the butt. They were just a real
2: solid package. One thing I think that's uh, that's got a. Um, a flavor to all of these bikes or many of these bikes here today is a guy by the name of Cliff White, who was uh, much like you, like a, a young kid that got on as a mechanic and became one of the best mechanics in the sport. He worked for David. he would go on to work for Jean-Michel Bale as well. Uh, when you look at this 86 500, or you look at the 84 500 that you guys have here, uh, that Honda has here, you can see Cliff's little personal touches on it um, and really like some cool little things that Cliff did
0: yeah cliff white the best one uh, one of the two best mechanics far beyond me
2: who's the that, other one uh,
0: john rosenthal john yeah, yeah. And i put those two guys like for different reasons cliff is excellent at engine tuning and so meticulous at every element of bike setup i mean he is if if cliff worked on it it's mechanically perfect right. and and it's just immaculate in every way john r Uh, is that he's a little bit more of a scientist. You know, Cliff is around motors and cylinders. He loves 125s. John R. would play around with suspension and do, you know, more of a, but I I viewed him as being, I mean, he's back when, go back to Elsinore's or let's say RC125s and 7475, they blew up for everybody. You know, the ones in Japan, they had, especially, well, sometimes, Cylinders and pistons, you know, it's hard to keep those things that made a lot of power that were that small to stay together yep. But also they had a, a clutch hub that was all hollowed out and some of the the spring fingers were Welded in spot welded in they would only last a certain amount and John R would whether they were pistons or clutch
2: hubs I mean he knew exactly how yeah. long to run them and so I work with John R. at Yamaha uh, He was a suspension guy a couple things come to mind. He was uh, really funny he would wash his face with Windex uh, on a rag. <laughs> That's and then, true. Yeah, he would wash his face with Windex. And two, he built he built an X-ray in his garage. And I believe he built some sort of nuclear fission machine in his garage. I don't know what the... Fusion. Fusion thing? I believe, I believe it's fusion. Right. So this is what John R. does for his spare time. Yeah. Uh, a hell of a guy and uh, a
0: great dude. John R. is one of... Uh in that category and you i mean i just work on motorcycles i never got into nuclear fusion <laughs> yeah. especially in my garage right, but right. john r is one of the country's premier engineers scientists yeah. that works yeah. on things yeah like he's got that. some awards yeah so yeah. Was-
2: thanks for listening to fly racing racer x podcast with dave arnold hope you've enjoyed it thank you to the Kobo Links. From Aprilia to Yamaha, they make lowering suspension links for uh, all sorts of motorcycles. Gain some confidence, increase your plushness. Uh, if you're a shorter stature person or your girlfriend, wife has a bike that can't quite touch the ground, then you know how delicate that is to go riding when you're not totally confident. Well, Kobolinks will make you a link, and uh, it'll work perfectly on your motorcycle. So please check that out, kobolinks.com, K-O-U-B-A, links.com. Use the code PULPAMEX for free shipping. Uh, built, in, built in Boise, Idaho for a number of years now. So thank you to uh, the folks at KoboLinks for coming on board. And KoboLinks is sold at Motorsport. Motorsport.com, OEM and aftermarket parts over there at Motorsport. Great return policy. Free shipping, I think, over 79 bucks as well. Please check out Motorsport.com. Use the banner on pulpamex.com or pulpamexshow.com. Go through the banner to make your purchase, to see the uh, prices, to see the pulpamex Show uh, discounts and prices and things like that. And we get a small slice of that, and it helps us out. So... We'd appreciate that as well, motorsport.com. If you have any issues, any any concerns with motorsport.com, send me an email using a contact form on pulpamex.com, and I'll pass it on to Motorsport, and I'll make sure that you get personally handled uh, with those guys. So thank you to motorsport.com and Cobolinks, Renthal, Maxis, and, of course, the folks at Fly Racing, and you people. Here's the rest of Dave Arnold Podcast. For me as a kid, to work with Bob Oliver and John R, you know, going to Yamaha, I was, I was blown away. I just was like really fortunate that I got time to spend time with these guys that, you know, and, or, and here today too as well with you. Uh, a couple of things on this 86500 that stand out to me. Uh, first, it's the first year that Honda uh, got involved with Renthal, a company from the UK that made aluminum handlebars with a little bracing on it. Um, this was the first year. You can see the old Renthal sticker on the bike, and uh, and it's a relationship that continues to this day. Still, Renthal products, uh, magnesium lower uh, fork legs, magnesium hubs, really cool. Uh, you're starting to see some really advances in suspension around this time.
0: Yeah, uh, the, the, the thing about uh, the thing about that relationship with Renthal is, you know, the engineers track chassis rigidity and sp- they they track trends. You know, on on road bikes they track flywheel inertia. You know, and and then we want to make this line of bikes have this character, and this line of bikes have this character. For motocross, the chassis have been, because of the style of racing in the States, because of Supercross, chassis rigidities were slowly climbing up, and fork diameters were slowly increasing, and so you know, the the rigidity, the rigidity balance, whatever you call mm-hmm. it, was steadily increasing, Starting, yeah. and you know, and also maybe even the amount of dampening you're running, and the style of dampening you're running in the component, and so a lot of that transfers back to shock to the rider. Some of that does. Yeah. And, you know, we start to do, for certain guys, uh, rubber mount the bars, and we would have different lastmers we would use for the different guys. Mm-hmm. But uh, we found it was because of David Thorpe that the Rental handlebar at the time, even the conventional Rental, it actually was very strong, but it was very effective at absorbing shock. So I wonder sh- if
2: it was the bolt-on Crossbar that did some of that.
0: I yeah. can only imagine. Right, right. But, uh, you know, and so then it was a part, there was, you know, some of the writers had relationships whether it was with some of the companies that made you know, they would want to run their own handlebar, their own handlebar bend. And so at that point, when it sort of did cross into the performance of the motorcycle, we wanted to kind of keep, you know, control over the bike spec as it were. So we started that relationship with Brenthal Henry had to make different mounts because his aluminum bars were a couple tenths of a millimeter different than normal steel really bars. Yeah, oh wow so okay
2: so there was actually some engineering. A, yeah. yeah yeah
0: i know they they interchange but right. we had to uh
2: around this time or even before uh and i probably should have asked you this earlier are you playing are you guys playing around with adjustable races when do adjustable races come in and all of that for, for
0: i probably i mean I I did a lot of that stuff because you had production regulation, but you could sort of move everything, not just. Right. It was a way to get around. Without getting into detail, you can move a lot of things by elliptical everything. And so I would play around with that stuff because still, you know, let's just take a fork. If you change and you're not just looking to increase the head angle, you're looking for weight bias and pitching moments and things like that. So, um, you know, you can change chain torque and ratios and all kinds of stuff with ellipticals and even you know your you know some of the geometry on the chassis yeah even though it's a fixed chassis you can right you can tweak it a little bit
2: do you remember Dave at this time uh like the other OEMs your competitors uh being a little bit shocked that you guys were able to maintain such an advantage over people equipment wise do you remember any Uh, any? I think well I,
0: I don't know about that I just focused on trying to maintain an advantage, but I know Yamaha, uh, it was mainly Kenny. He would make a lot of comments, you know, when work bikes go away, you know, your, your, your whole party is over and, or whatever he said it. And I don't know. I, I mean, I like, I love, I love all the work stuff. I love how exotic, I love looking at mag castings. I mean, the stuff is beautiful, right? The handmade tanks and, but, at the end of the day it's still just a tool you know and it's got to be an effective tool and would i rather have an 85 bike that looks trick you know or one that won races in 86 no i'd rather win races so um it's just just a tool so i mean it changed but we i i think the mentality of uh you still have to tune it you still have to make it work you have to give confidence to the rider you need you know and motivate the guy to win and do his part so I don't think that stopped because of a light switch but works to production, so.
2: So we go through the years, Dave, uh, 88, the low boy pipe comes out. That transforms production bikes again, lower mass centralization. That's a big deal. Uh, and we go through the bikes in lots more championships and lots of more wins. And we come up to this bike here, Jeremy McGrath 1996 CR 250. Uh, it's the last year of the steel frame. Um, he's in now Jeremy's in a dominant run of Supercross wins but as as we well know this is still the 1993 frame that Jeremy likes so much what it is what was it about that 93 bike that Jeremy loved that he carried into this thing
0: that's a very involved answer okay um, we we'll try to make it as la- <laughs> try to make it as easy for us laymen as you can Dave well I mean going back to 88 I wasn't quite as wound up about that bike. You know, oh, the 86 okay. and 87 yep. were great bikes. 80, 89, 90, 91 were great bikes. The 88 The 88, was, 88 oh. bike, it was a transition, you know, with major model change and tooling, and they did the low boy thing, conceptually some of those things, but they also did some things with the frame where it was less tubes and more gusset, trying to have gusseting act as tubes. Tubes, yeah. And some of that stuff I didn't think worked out that well, so there was some flex issues that I didn't care for and some bending issues that, you know, you have to keep your eye on. You have to change that stuff a little bit more frequently than you did prior to and after that. But uh, back to then in 92, again, a major model change, not a real, I hope I don't get in trouble with people that used to pay my- I
2: think you're fine.
0: I think I'm fine. Statue of limitations. 88 88 and 82 aren't my favorite, but it's like when you make these big changes and uh, again, most, a lot of them are theoretical and and, in 92, uh, it's following, Suzuki had a pretty good bike they came out with in 90. Probably uh, Ross Mieta had a lot to do with that. But in any case, it was fundamentally different. It had, I call it a, it was a little steeper, it was a little longer in the front. Mm-hmm. It had a high swing arm pivot, short swing arm, a lot of anti-squat. And so I guess because of those things, Honda went for, you know, if a little does a little good, a lot do a lot of good. Right. So they went further with that bike. So. And they tried to make it a really light bike, had a different exhaust valve as well on the the engine. Um, So that bike, we did win the championship with Jeff Stanton, but it was not easy to get Bale and Stanton happy on that bike because for pro level guys, they probably preferred the bikes with the HPP power yeah, valve, a yeah. little stiffer chassis. So yeah, I
2: understood you were bracing it a lot. Right? We were yeah.
0: freaking doing everything. Yeah. It was Jeff barely beat Bradshaw. A real dramatic really? moment at the LA Coliseum. But one thing we did do after to try to figure out what was right and wrong about that major model change, this chassis engineer and I, we came up with a plan that uh, we made like 20 different chassis. Different diameter tubes and different. I was, I was very intrigued with Kawasaki had made a steel perimeter frame a few years early, earlier, and I wanted to really understand what was good and, you know, yeah. and, and compromised on that design. So we made 20 chassis, and out of that, we narrowed it down to like two or three chassis of, you know, based yeah. on a 92. And so we did all this testing with McGrath, who is totally a different writer than Jeff Stanton mcgrath rides with feel he keeps momentum in turns he uses mid-range only he wants a big hit he wants to clear all this stuff he doesn't over rev mm-hmm. and he doesn't really need a lot of bottom power because he carries momentum so but he liked this one chassis that had a little bit less rigidity than jeff jeff liked this other chassis because he likes to hit things hard yeah. you know and he wants the chassis and to he's help absorb strength, that he's and he's strength. Strength. Yep. so as far as feel or compliance or Yeah, he's not as sensitive of those things as maybe like a Jeremy. So we did put so much into that that Jeremy just loved that bike when we were done with it. And the bikes changed plastic. The bikes changed a lot of things all the way up through 96, but he never wanted to change that platform.
2: Right. Now, how close was his 93? You know, adding braces is legal and doing and bracing a frame is that's all, you know, per AMA rules. How close was his 93 frame to pr- production? Very close. Yeah, just a few small yeah, braces. Yeah, yeah, just small, just braces, and, just small yeah.
0: braces. But yep. fundamentally, yeah. same, same chassis, essentially, but yep. totally different. I mean, same geometry, right. different tubes, different thicknesses, different.
2: Sure. When you talk to people like Rich Taylor, that I know well, yeah. did a lot of development around this time, Talk to Jeremy, this motor is amazing, isn't it? This, 90, this 96 CR250 motor is, is one of the best.
0: Yes. Yeah. Excluding, excluding 86, 87, 89, 90, 91, it's a great motor.
2: Really? Sure. You still think those other ones were probably better?
0: Huh? Yeah, I do. Okay.
2: Because C- of the you HPP. You take a 90,
0: a 90, 90 uh, 89, 90, 91. HPP. That's HPP. Yep. That's as close to a works engine you're going to get in, produ- in really? production okay. ever. Wow. 96. I mean, it depends if you're. 96. That that power valve will never have the torque of those engines but it's probably got a better hit so it depends on how you ride
2: is that why dave when i worked at fmf honda in 98 we were trying to buy 94 hpp cylinders to put them on (laughs) that's why (laughs) because apparently they were sold out everywhere so what what year was that 98 yeah that's why yeah everyone was trying to get the hpp cylinders right i love just you know and i
0: that's one reason the 88 bike was screwed up you know hpp was an exhaust valve that opened rapidly. So it essentially, it had two different power bands. It had this bottom end, had a big dip, and then it had this top end, which it not only did it have top end, it had torque, has a dip, it has hit, which, and then it has peak power and over rev. I mean, you could say it's got this dip, but then go ahead and try to get rid of the dip and make it linear. If you make it linear, you don't have the hit. Right. You know, so it's uh and i i was the one that pushed engineers one of the ones that you know you got to fill this in yamaha's system it makes power in transition mm-hmm. i th- i thought that was what you had to yeah. have right but right. not it wasn't i mean I, I was i was wrong and i partially responsible for screwing the thing <laughs> up and we had to go all the way back so yeah
2: yeah interesting yeah. um jeremy certainly uh you know did great things for honda and just it, it never stopped it went from Bailey to Johnson to Stanton to McGrath the winning never stopped Dave when you were there it just kept going (laughs) timing's everything I was exceptionally lucky (laughs) right right I I think there's more to it than that uh the next bike we have here is Ricky Carmichael's 02 CR250 now you had left Honda at this point but I do want to talk to you uh this we pointed out the 96 bike 1997 the first year of, of an aluminum frame in production motocross, Honda's the first one to do it. They're all aluminum now outside of the Austrian bikes. Um, this the 97, again, talking to Rich Taylor, the original idea of the aluminum frame worked very, very well. Everything was looking good when you teamed it with the 96 motor. Unfortunately, it looks like before production, there was some material added to the aluminum frame for durability for the consumer. Honda sort of missed the mark on the aluminum frame in 97, didn't they?
0: Yes. Uh, I guess in a way. I mean, I was told at the time, you know, and based on some of the stuff we had learned early in the 90s, as far as what Stanton and McGrath liked, I mean, the numbers for lateral and torsional and flex character, you know, then when i saw the numbers for i mean i thought i was pretty smart after going through that whole exercise right yeah i mean i got everything all figured out now and then i saw aluminum the numbers for the aluminum bike and i was like this isn't how can this work you know and uh but the main focus was on durability if it ever broke they'd never recover so it can never break and you know performance to i would say the engineer it's kind of uh subjective right some people may or may not like it and they've been tracking chassis rigidity in general for you know it's been increasing it's been increasing so the fact that this was a little bit more but yeah it's pretty easy to say in hindsight it was way over the top right so
2: and i and i feel like since 1997 as as the manufacturers have done everybody has have just tried to lessen and lessen yeah. the rigidity of aluminum yeah. uh, as we go on but that 97 year uh you know this is an 02 bike from ricky yeah. carmichael uh, it's still different this is a five-year gap from the first bike this is already a big change big change and it changes even more after that yeah 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 now as a as a chassis guy are you are you do you like the aluminum do you like aluminum frames is that what we is that what offers the best performance yeah it depends how
0: you define performance but (laughs) um you know to me I don't think there's enough of, of, of an advantage. I mean, there's also compromises with aluminum and I think there's advantages and compromises with steel. One thing's, one thing I like about the steel is that tubes are smaller, packaging is better. So then, you know, if the tubes are smaller, then you have more room for air box and you have more room for connecting tube things just line up better. You don't, you have the head pipe coming out of the cylinder and I like packaging of steel frames better than I like packaging of aluminum frames. You have more ground clearance. You have They can run all this stuff more compact, tighter to the engine. And I think, you know, motocross bikes, you're trying to maximize suspension travel, keep the seat height reasonable, ground clearance max, you know, you're trying to do a whole bunch of things, you know, and, you know. So, and then there was a period of time you could say aluminum was lighter. I'm not sure you can actually definitively say that any longer right mm-hmm. i mean yeah. ktm made a 454 stroke at 222 pounds or something yep. like that so yeah, yeah you're so right. i don't know but that said aluminum i think i believe has gotten into the ballpark of minimizing those negatives you know and it, you talk about carmichael's bike but i think even the next generation was even that much better so sure. um yeah i don't know you know some of the aesthetically I, th- I know one reason manufacturing liked aluminum is there was just physically less parts. So they got robots, and they can't robot weld all of them because some of them have to be cosmetic. But you know, you can have a casting and extrusion, two perimeter beams, you know, and a couple down tubes and head pipe. And you you got a frame. You know, it's it's less than half the parts of steel where you have to have all these little gussets and all these little. I think so that you know, even if there's a cost difference of material there's a cost difference in manufacturing as well. So it, I don't know. I think, I think, uh, aesthetically, I also like steel a little bit better. It's a little sexier. You look at a KTM frame <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's like, uh, not allowed to say women with skinny ankles. I don't think you know. we can say
2: that anymore. No, you right, can't say that. Um, uh, uh, Thanks, Dave, for this uh, walk down memory lane. A, a tremendous time for a Honda, a tremendous ingenuity, amazing time. So many wins and victories. You've been part of motocross history. You're going in the AMA Hall of Fame as well. Uh, so thanks for this, man. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, you're very welcome. I mean, and I enjoy all this stuff as much as the next guy. I'm a little overwhelmed about that whole AMA thing, but I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll pan out fine. But, no, I really enjoy it. Uh, it, there's a bubble to where so much happened over such a short period of time that it's it's just fascinating to go back and talk about it and look at all the bikes.
2: All right, that's the end of the audio from the video of Dave Arnold talking about the legendary Honda HRC bikes. Now we are going to go into a bonus podcast about 20 minutes. Uh, Tomac, Alta, um, Bale, Stanton, that kind of era, just stuff I wanted to pick Dave's brain with. So this stuff is uh, is a separate bonus podcast for you and uh, again thank you for listening fly racing racer x podcast presented by maxis Renthal, all motorsport.com uh here's the rest of my chat with the legendary the ama hall of famer dave arnold all right dave uh thanks for doing that factory bike thing this is an extra bonus podcast special that we'll put up as an audio uh dave arnold here on the uh, fly racing racer x steve mathis show a couple things. Uh, you've had a great career. We just went through it all with Honda and everything else, but you're also involved with the Alta guys at some point. And I rode one for a while. And I really liked it. I really see our future. I don't know exactly what happened to the company, um, but they're no longer around. But from your point of view, like what did you think of that project? What did you bring to the project? And is that the future? Is that where we're going?
0: Well, that's hard to answer. I think it has uh There's probably a whole bunch of things that influence that, but uh, as far as what I think of the project, I mean, I don't know where electric fits in right now here today. I mean, people I think have a tendency to compare them, you know, apples to apples, and I think they're slightly different. I mean, like any electric product is, I I don't think it has quite the same durability. It's, it's uh, well, I'm going to say range, and I don't think it has, you know, it's got a little bit more weight, but. The product was received quite well by people that actually ride it and experience yeah. it. I and couldn't
2: believe it. When I rode one, I was blown yeah. away how fast it was. Yeah. Like, you know, the ignition setting maps, like the very fast, the fastest ignition setting, I wanted nothing to do with.
0: Yeah, right, right. I, I was
2: blown right. away. Yeah. Uh,
0: I got calls from, uh, I think the Fox brothers came in and they bought a few of the bikes because they're kind of up in the same area yeah. there. And, you know, they wanted to kind of reprime some of the you know th- what the company was back in mm-hmm. maybe the 70s some of the people that, some of the writers that helped them uh, obtain in yeah. riding in the 70s so they gave a bike to marty smith uh, i think lackey howerton maybe there were some others but Uh, When I was at Alta, Howerton used to call all the time and he has a bit of Parkinson's right now, right? And so he struggles with this and that for everyday life. But when he got on the bike, all those, whatever those issues with Parkinson's completely go away. And he says, I have more fun riding this bike than any bike I've ever ridden in my career. He loved it. So, and I heard that from a lot of guys, a lot of the guys that were doing testing that it was, it's fun to ride. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you don't realize you're, I'm not trying to be environmental here, but you don't realize you're around the, the gas and mm-hmm. the burn and all that yep. until you actually have that product. And then you go to the track, like, man, all these other bikes, man, they got this odor in my eyes. <laughs> you know. But, uh, the reason I got, I got involved, I was asked by a friend of mine, Steve Simons, who's also a Northern California yep. guy and been in the industry. And those guys wanted, uh, the Alta guys and the engineers and the they wanted me to help them get contacts with honda mm-hmm. at honda so they could just buy hardware they did, they're trying to develop that technology so they need to work on the chassis and the motor and the battery and all the electrics but they wanted to just purchase from a manufacturer brakes and wheels and yep. things like that yep. foot pegs and actually honda talked to them quite a bit they ended up making a deal with i think it was ktm they right. buy some KTM wheels and brakes and things like that, shocks, suspension components, triple clamps. But um, I don't know, I thought it was, it was. It, I learned a lot, it was exciting, you, yeah. something different. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously power delivery is a little bit different. You, I, I'm not really an electric guy, but I dealt with people working yeah. with those programs and the evolution of those electronics and also the batteries. And uh, as it relates to chassis stuff I was doing, Uh, I started out sort of where I saw the industry at the point in time, Mm -hmm. just rake and trail and ground clearance and seat height and chain torque and all that stuff, motion ratios, but uh, electric's slightly different in that the battery is a huge part of the weight, Mm -hmm. and so where you put that, and that has an effect on, you know, the center of gravity and also weight bias, so you know, I I can't say I nailed it. I think it was pretty close in the beginning, but Uh. Anyway.
2: Were you uh surprised or were you um expect or, or did it did it surprise you or not to see them kinda come in with a bang, they Harley Davidson invested and then they're out with a bang. Uh what that did no that part yeah, I, I'm not ever been
0: a business guy yeah. per se. Yeah. So the whole thing about getting funding and people investing and, you know, how far that is supposed to go. I mean, I know they had their operation up in San Francisco. So I just imagine their overhead was right. was big. I don't know if that's OK or not yeah, for yeah. that industry taking off. And then uh, I heard a bit. This is all third hand that Harley invested. But I think Harley wanted them to, you know, he's got a group of experts for electric. And I think Harley had a different project that they wanted, you know, yeah. all to, to work on for them. And uh, I think they burned through that and went, wanted more. And I think, from what I understand, Harley just figured out who all the smart guys were. And <laughs> and, and maybe they looked them, around yeah. and saw what the overhead was, and yeah. they just went and started their
2: own office and took all the talent. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I think it, uh, I was really surprised how good the thing was out of the box for an average guy like myself. It's the vet rider. I was like, this, is, this might be the future, you know what I mean? I was blown away. So we'll see what happens. In the, yeah. I'm, I mean,
0: when, I'm I'm not promoting electric here, yeah. but I do think there's, uh, obviously it's harder and harder. You know, you got people get jobs and people have families and you used to be your riding areas were right down the street. Yeah. Now you got to drive. It's an all day thing and it's a big commitment. And the performance of whatever you buy at any manufacturer for a gas bike is mm-hmm. off the chart, you know, yep. for what you get for the money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I also saw like, maybe there's other places you could put you know something like a local track let's say the park systems or yep. i saw what skateboarding did it used to yeah. be a big liability to have a skateboard park and then all of a sudden they work something out with city parks and yeah. you know i think the liability falls within the same category if you have softball or football yeah. or yeah. you know and so then all of a sudden that turned into a very mainstream thing so i don't know i think it'd be fun if they did something like that with electric and you see electric bicycles yeah. it's going nuts it's, so it's great. to yeah. me it's I don't know why it hasn't already happened electric motocross there's something right in the yeah. middle that I think you know could
2: we we did see a prototype Honda on display at a J- Japanese show one time did, that's right. bike so there's definitely you know, some rumbling those rumblings those, of-
0: those engineers were um I knew a yep. lot of them and I think it was Mugen that got the contract to work on this stuff for yep. Honda R&D yeah they were at many of our race events we were with Alta they were up in the stands with stopwatches oh, and yeah, looking yeah. at the bikes and yeah yeah so yeah, yeah they've
2: they, they want to
0: keep their finger on the pulse right, and right. so when anything does get switched on they'll be ready
2: um hey you've worked with uh, rockstar husky before you worked with geico honda before and you've been a big, big part of the eli tomax program for a number of years obviously switching to, to yamaha this year and that was a bit of a shock but you know the more you dive into it and you talk to eli which i did a couple weeks ago and you talk to people around the situation it really seemed like the john and eli wanted a little bit more control over the motorcycle Ricky Gilmore is a guy they worked before. you know Ricky at KYB. Um, they're very excited about working with him. I told Ricky he better be like he better get a tent and just camp out at the, in Cortez, Colorado because I think they'll be using him a lot. Um, what do you make of that switch for Eli as far as getting and he's mentioned it getting more control of the motorcycle and how's that going to go? Because sometimes in my opinion, I've seen guys just get lost, right? I've had some team managers that when we go testing, you know we're changing a front tire and forks and clamp at the same time and i'm like wait what and we're just getting lost and then we get out into left field and i don't and i think the Tomax wanted that but i don't necessarily think that's necessarily a great thing we'll see the, dur- the jury will be will, will be out on that still what's your take on all that situation and getting more control
0: i think it's i think it's tricky it's not that it can't work yeah and the reason i say it's tricky is that you know yes best case scenario the manufacturer you know develops a product and it's a moving bar, right? You know, if you're gonna have the best bike for Supercross, the best bike for outdoor, but um, you know, so if teams, you give them a really good base and then they're able to tune. Now that said, every rider is different. It's Mm -hmm. like a Jason Anderson rides on the back of the bike much like a, let's say a Tomac, like a Graham noise used to. And then that's a different rider than let's say a Carmichael or a McGrath. So the team's kind of gotta be smart enough to be able to follow and you know, Ricky Ricky Gilmore is a smart guy. He's been ar- around this stuff for yep. a long time, and I think he's an exceptional suspension tuner to the point he knows that it's a different setup for different riders mm. in different conditions, outdoor and indoor. Um, I think the danger of getting more control over your own program is it's, uh, you gotta be careful how much R and D you really do in racing. You can really screw up as many or more things than you ever started (laughs) to address. So it's not that it can't be a good thing. You just need to be careful. I know I, I've made those mistakes. I know possibly Ricky, you know, there's the positives and there's, yeah. So it's just tricky. You better be careful what you wish for. And you also look at some of these bigger companies and they got racing worldwide you know so their r&d the input they're getting from racers on the grand prix circuit from people on the us supercross track yeah. the us that that all that stuff is is giving r&d Funneled into, yeah. it's it's a it's just a wealth of information now you're going it alone you got to figure all that out on your own so mm-hmm. yeah. all i'm going to say is it's tricky of course it can be yeah. done yeah. but be careful
2: but talking about that yamaha um, you know the factory team with justin barsha Ryan ryanville poto helped out a little bit Aaron Plessinger they were okay they got some results things were going forward and then star Yamaha team takes the reins a little bit more there's a little bit more freedom to do their own things from what I understand Uh, we talked to Aaron Plessinger on the pulp show and he was telling us about the the linkage and, and pull rods that Ricky Gilmore came up with sometime in the outdoors and how good that was and it was like a magic button and then they said they went a little further to that direction and it was even better and like i'm an old i'm an old mechanic where i'm a little bit skeptical at times because i'm just like just ride the bike like like to me you're never going to get a bike perfect you'll get it there 90 percent and then i need you the rider to make it work Wh- whatever it was yep it gave
0: him the confidence well, to almost win daytona exactly so right? it doesn't even matter yeah like, right so you know
2: that that's the point like so the, aaron starts turning it on right and rides great dylan ferrandes wins the outdoor title um and again you you know some of that stuff behind the scenes on this on this deal as well that's a big deal wasn't that a huge thing for these guys I mean that team and I think Ricky I think it's and, a surprise
0: yeah. within the industry and I, I think there's enough uh, moving parts that probably I don't even understand when you I don't really under know. I don't know the star guys I mean I know Ricky we, yeah we were we were we lived together in Austria for a year you yeah, know, yeah doing a project over there right um but you know, there's a whole dynamic of of, of, a, of a team, right, and a support system in the in a team, and who does the testing and who who does the suspension, and you know, so I don't really understand between in-house Yamaha and outside. One thing I'll say is. You know, when you're in-house, again, you're tied to a bigger process, and sometimes you get your hands tied by that, and sometimes there's a blessing. So you got engineers that have all these standards, and you know, as far as, well, when does the bike get hot? If you're at sand tracks, do you need a fan? And I mean, there's a wealth of information that come from being connected to a factory effort Yep. That's you don't even see. Yeah. It's behind yeah. the scene all the way back in Japan or all the way right. back in Mundafing, Austria.
2: Yep and uh i remember we were having a problem at yamaha with air boots yeah and bob oliver told me i talked to the guy that designed the air boot yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. i got a fax back yeah. and like <laughs> so that's <laughs> right. but at the same t- but at the same
0: time with that comes a sense of pride right Yeah. so now we design this thing we built this thing now you go race it uh, you know so now you're yeah you're, you're, I see you yep. when when you when you start messing around with R&D issues you're really telling them that that wasn't quite enough yeah. you know so yeah. where's that line how much best case you don't do a lot of that in racing <laughs> yeah. sometime but I mean you can look back at this is only from the outside Yamaha it's yep. been a whole bunch of years and there's been a lot of riders leave that team uh-huh. and do better on other teams so is that all psychological right. so whatever they did whether it was on the human side or whether it was on the hardware side, it was enough to make the riders confident yeah. that they could go out there and do something yeah. with it. So that, yeah, it was quite a, quite a turnaround,
2: quite a turnaround for those guys. Um, we just talked about the history of your history at Honda and the history of these works bikes. And as I mentioned in the, in the earlier, it's just a lineage of winning, right? And from rider to rider, from machine to machine, it was fantastic. But to me, some of the most interesting years in the sport, whether I talked to Jeff Stanton or Jean-Michel Bale or Dan Bentley or Cliff White or yourself and our other podcasts that we did, That battle with an injured Rick Johnson being a little upset that Jeff Stanton is now the number one guy to transferring to a French guy named Jean-Michel Bale who didn't want to play by any rules it seemed like, team rules, you benched him for a race. Um, There was a lot of the mechanics didn't like each other, Dan and Brian weren't getting along what a crazy time to be part of factory honda and yeah. but the winds kept coming what was it like behind the scenes to juggle all of that
0: we're we're a whore for results aren't we i mean <laughs> i mean the the drama you could cut with a knife yeah. and it's just you had if you flash after that let's say five years okay. you know you had you got really good results with jeff stanton mcgrath Lampson, henry yeah right Yep, but one of those guys was better outdoor than indoor Mm -hmm. one of those guys was better like 125 than 250 and so nobody they were all had mutual respect Mm -hmm. and nobody nobody really was shooting for the same goal right it was accepted that McGrath's is probably the most talented and And, and Stanton's a little bit more the outdoor guy and they got along right but that that area you're talking about with Bale and and Stanton. And who was it? Stanton. Yep.
2: And then RJ. And
0: who then was RJ, a little bit, So yeah. you had, I mean, you know, Ricky Johnson was dominant yeah. when he got injured at the prime of his career, right? You know, you don't want to walk away from that. He wants to step right back where he stopped. Absolutely. His injuries were bad, but he's still, yeah. uh, you know, he, mentally, I'm still the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like I'm not the guy. And then you had Stanton, who expected him to step up? I mean... Probably, yeah. none yeah. Yeah. Probably none of us. Probably none of the other right. teams. I mean, I, I could see. You when, took
2: a guy that was fifth or sixth or seventh in the title chases the year before yeah. and turned him into a champion.
0: There was there was a, there was a race after Ricky had gotten injured. It was a supercross, I think it was Atlanta, Georgia, and there was Ward and Cooper and I don't know. There was five guys yeah. that that didn't know how to race because. <laughs> Johnson used to dominate. Right. And, okay, we're yeah. raced for second. Now those guys are yeah. like, and then it was like they're guy, freaking Cooper, out because they can Cooper win. Cooper flies right. off the track, and yeah. then Stanton goes, well, if nobody else is going to figure, I'll go. You didn't really expect him to, yeah. you know, but yeah. Honda, he felt maybe that was his role, or maybe that was expectations, and right. maybe we probably did have those expectations. So yeah, there was. But then with Bale coming, and and that was tricky because now you got. The champion that was, and now Andrew wants to come back, the champion that is now yep. with Stanton. Mm-hmm. Now you got John Michelle Bale wanting to come. Now Japan is harping on Roger and I, do not talk to this guy. We don't <laughs> want this guy in America. I mean, we have a very strong relationship. They're yeah. the mothership. Yeah. And they want that's their world champion. They wanted him to stay in stay Europe. Stay in Europe. But he wasn't, he wasn't they, going to. He wasn't yeah. going to do that. But they still didn't want to encourage this, right? Yeah, yeah. So, we're trying to appease, we're just trying to appease. Roger and I are kind of in cahoots, cahoots yeah. you know. <laughs> we're, we're trying to appease JMB. Well, then get him a van. Well, I'll sneak you a couple bikes and then yeah. just keep him happy enough that he's not going to go sign and ride a cowie. Right. And then, which we did, you know, yeah. and then he ends up traveling this circuit. And uh, he, the thing is, regardless of what room we did we had or did not have for him mm-hmm. we did not want to race against john Michel bale on
2: another brand yeah on another yeah, brand yeah.
0: because our job is to win and yep. and bale was a talent i mean he might have been a pain in the ass but he was right. a talent right. so and then even the mechanics right they didn't like each other well everybody yeah. got this whole thing created a life of its own you got you know Beav a friend of you know you got Hannah and all the Americans, yeah, you know, yeah. and Hannah liked to say all these commie bastards coming over here. And then you got Larry Myers and Bevo and the mechanics. Yeah. And it turned into this real Cliffs national-
2: quiet, sort of prideful guy working for JMB. Uh, right.
0: I, I, and I'm I, it's just a sport. I just want to win. I don't care <laughs> what color. I don't care what nationality. I mean, yeah. and so but and I don't even think that should be in a part of the part of the equation. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just whoever wins. Yeah. You respect that. that that, that
2: performance right
0: but that's kind of naive in the real world people do get wound up about all this stuff and
2: so I kind of heard like from what I get from talking to everybody is you were looking after Dan and Stanton and Roger was looking after Cliff and Bale, and making sure that the two sides were happy and content, and then you guys would make sure that come back together. And Ro- sure.
0: Roger and I were at cahoots. We yeah. just wanted to manage just, the team, yeah, yeah. and so he got laced with the responsibility of, right. you know, sort of uh, looking after Bale. Yeah, and then I mean, I mean, me, everybody else, and I've got to try to yep. make treat everybody equal, but yeah. you know, Bale had a has he's got a bit of a quirk to where he's I don't want to say he's not a team player but it's kind of like the team would be a lot smoother if there was only one rider. <laughs> and uh and I, I I would say that that there was always if it wasn't just that there was always conspiracy about the AMA and if there was a doping test it was American they're trying to yeah everything yeah. was a conspiracy yeah, yeah, right? right and then they're all I don't I didn't want to believe that was true. Right. I, I don't really believe that was true, yep. but I don't know. Maybe some element was
2: sure. I don't want to believe that, right. you know, yeah. Motocross action too, taking a lot of shots at JMB. The, ma- the major media taking shots at JMB like for different things. I felt like, you know, so like he probably felt like a little bit persecuted that way, you know? Yeah. So. But I guess they, they, when it gets
0: into that, like, but they love to cost her. Right. True. Yeah. yeah. So what's the difference? Right. 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 One. one is the guy's more humble. He's freaking talented during his term yeah. of racing. Yep, yep. But even beyond that, I love, you know, I, I mean, I want to be in America. He buys a house yeah. in America. Right. I want to grow the sport in America. I'm an ambassador for the sport. I mean, I'm, I'll am sign autographs all night long. Right, right. Whatever it takes, you know, I'm all in. Yeah. And then you got Maybe somebody else, it's like, you know, none of these people like me. And yeah. uh, I'm, 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 I, I don't know. Whatever it is, the right. difference was not totally within my control. Yeah, crazy the time for you the guys. The difference was really more in his control, yeah. but then I got blamed for it, I think. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, and then at some point, you have, and you've told this story before, you had to bench John Michel, uh, 1990, 125 Nationals. He's leading, he breaks his arm. Yeah. Uh, and then he's out of the championship point, and his teammate Mike Krodowski, now has a chance to get the title. And you say, "Hey, if Krodowski's coming, can you just let him by?" And John michel says, "No." And you say, it "Wasn't it wasn't even quite okay. that
0: blatant? Okay, it was more like there was a history of John Michelle not being uh, much, not being that sympathetic or not being much of a help when yeah. it came to if there was somebody else on the team at the very last day of a championship." You may need Hannah to not win that day, so sure. so yeah. so David Bailey can, yeah. you know, which, yeah. ha- which, happened which happened in Millville, right? Which happened in Millville. Yeah. So yes, yes, Hannah drops his bike in the last turn, right. drives you crazy, you know, and yes, he takes she's tucking his shirt in and takes forever, makes it painfully obvious yeah. that you made him do that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever. Bailey got yeah. the points, but. In the case of Bale, with what happened to Stanton at the LA Coliseum and on a few other occasions, him and Kudrowski sort of had this thing going, you know, and uh, I don't know, they just did, I don't know, probably because he was on another Honda and they were in the same class Mm and they were both trying to win a championship. John, there should not have been anybody racing John michel Bale for that championship, but he was, in my opinion, so distracted with wanting to race, now he's looking beyond I mean, he was 125 world champ, yeah. didn't defend it. Then 250 world champ, didn't defend right. it, came to the States. 250, 250 Supercross, 250 outdoor, 500 outdoor. Yeah. Yep. And then he's gone. Uh, who, he, yeah. should, he just wanted to idle his way through that 120, be the first rider in history to win, yeah. have won everything. Yep. But he was too distracted with this road race thing he's trying to organize for the following year. <laughs> falls off his bike. So then I got to say, okay, you're the fastest here. But when you come back, but he wouldn't answer that issue, right? Because it was an obvious issue, (laughs) right? My job. So then he finally gets there. I can't nail him down at the hotel. Finally, after practice, even, you know, he was pretty good about, avoiding that issue or talking to me about it yeah and then uh, i'm like jmb come on you know i mean yeah. and he goes it'll never come down to that and i go yeah you're probably right but yep. it might but if it does but if it does <laughs> you'll never you never wanted to be pressed on the point and yeah. he goes you can't ask me to do that he goes it's like eating shit yeah and i go that's exactly right that's my job <laughs> i go now we now we got something in common yeah, because yeah, yeah. You know, our job, right. that's, exact, so that's what we got to do if it comes down to that. Yeah. And uh, he goes, you can't ask me to do it. I said, I so much appreciate you being honest, but you're not racing.
2: So. <laughs> Crazy, man. A factory rider, like in 2021, me and the media, if a factory rider got benched for this, this would be the biggest story. I talk about this for weeks, Dave. <laughs> I love Jean-Michel.
0: I, I, to this day, yeah. I mean, off separate from and that was only back when he was racing now i saw him in europe and i really like the guy on a personal level he's a great guy and during the week it's not even like the same guy you know he'd call me up after wanting to kill each other and then he's like hey you want to go bowling yeah (laughs) sure (laughs) it reminded me of uh, what was the cartoon with the the chicken and the the the, uh remember the guy the guy the the dog that, that was uh Guarding the oh, hen yeah, yeah, house yeah. and the chicken, yeah. then they'd come with their lunch pails. Hey, Ralph. yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah exactly. It was just his job to yeah, yeah to be that way, right? The Bugs Bunny one. Um, before we wrap it up here, uh, you've done so much in the sport. Uh, of course, I've mentioned just some of it and everything else. What, what do you regret though, Dave? What, what do you? What did you pass on? What did you? Did you leave Honda too early? Did you not do something else? What, what, uh, what would you change if you could, looking back on uh, nothing. Nothing. No. Okay that's a good way to to live. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean,
0: I love, but I almost, I don't know. I don't know that I really planned much of this, but I love, I love the era that we were involved in doing all this stuff. And then, you know, I wasn't quite as, uh, wound up, you know, when, when Japan backed off and maybe it got more corporate, you know, I probably wasn't, um, that comfortable with it, you know. Yeah. The focus was on winning, and I started, we, we tried. We started compromising some of those things. I thought was mm-hmm. the core value of the team. Um, not that they can't win today. I think they're yeah. coming back into that, you know. But quite honestly, but uh, well,
2: they but made that, that higher in Lars, and so we'll yeah. see. But. Yeah, <laughs> I think
0: Lars will be a great guy. He's put in his time, yeah. and he's got his. You know, he, he's gone through the ranks. He's he's almost performed all those roles that now he has to yeah. govern. So. Yeah. Uh, but you know the thing too is i don't know if you do things like way too long and i mean i did racing for 20 years but mm-hmm. i think sometimes you were able to change it up like okay i was a mechanic and then i got to manage it or no, i was roger's mechanic then yeah. i got to manage it i go that's for 20 years i go a lot of guys it's pretty small industry you can't stay in for that long yeah you know? yeah absolutely and then i got to go to r&d and continue to do it and then i got to work with engineers. I mean, it wasn't as public, but yep. I got to do all build all these prototypes and got a bunch of patents and president award or whatever and and uh I just got to do things that were challenging to me like sure. from a technical, yeah, creative yeah. standpoint. Right. So, I don't know. So I, nothing, yeah. I got I got no regrets. I mean, yeah. I probably got some people that had to tolerate me that i have to apologize to but uh,
2: we'll make a list we'll get down yeah that. um thanks very much for the time today uh congratulations on being an AMA hall of famer
0: thank you very uh, much.
2: and everything you've done in the sport i really really appreciate the time this is quite a legacy that you had a major hand in and uh, you should be super proud No, so oh, very
0: much i love all i wish i could take them all home with me
2: well i think we no one will notice maybe no we, maybe notice. we can just do that yeah yeah maybe all right. maybe we can pay colin off and uh, distract <laughs> him and then get all the bikes uh thanks dave thank you thanks
1: This has been the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show, presented by Maxis Tires, Renthal, Motorsport.com, and Kuba links on racerxonline.com. Thanks for listening and supporting our partners.